0: This episode of the Order 66 podcast brought to you by the generous donations of Kevin Malone, Donald Weller, B. Witzel, Andy Bethel, Darren Hampton, Trevor Hill, and William Sullivan, as well as lots of viewers and listeners like you. Oh, yeah, there's something else that needs to go there. <laughs> I'm out of practice! D20 Radio, your gamer's
1: roll. www.d20radio.com.
0: <laughs> Broadcast live. You're listening to the Order 66 podcast. Brought to you by Gamer Nation Studios, D20 Radio, and Wayne Basta, author of the Aristia series of novels. Greetings and salutations from the Order 66 podcast. My name is GM Dave and this is Sunday, February 21st, 2016. And my goodness, how long has it been since I have taken the show off the top?
1: Yes, indeed. I hope all the listeners out there have their 6 and 12 packs ready because it's good. it's game time, folks. Mm.
0: We, had a drink drink moment. Game time. we had a drink moment right off the top because uh, apparently Chris split the bed into two pieces and didn't tell me. So, you know, it, it is what it is. Anyway, welcome to the Insanity, the Order 66 podcast, the original podcast dedicated to Star Wars role-playing, gaming, systems, D20, and Fantasy Flight, all-inclusive. Yes, and we have a pretty nice little show in store for you tonight. Of course, I must welcome our super companion of the day. Also, my host, Mr. GM Phil.
1: Ah, thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here once again, and it's a rare show today. Very rarely do we get the Phil and Dave show, or the Dave and Phil show, or Phil and the Dave, Sands Dave Chris and Phil. Show.
0: That's right. the the uh, the minus Chris show, exactly. Yes,
1: the minus Chris show. That, yes. That'll
0: work. So he's off trapezing all over Europe somewhere. He's, um, I don't know, somewhere in the Alps. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, all I know is that Europe is on high alert, and I'm not entirely sure if it has something to do with Chris being there or not. But Great, uh, now
1: I just got this image of Chris in Lederhosen. <laughs> <laughs> That's never coming out. I'm oh, guessing God. that he's
0: drinking this, uh, you know. And then, and of course, we have ourselves a guest. We do, we do. We might sure. have a couple of guestesses, and we will get to that momentarily, sorry. but, I'm sorry? Certainly. Yes, indeed. But first, but first, we have this.
2: Hello there.
1: What have we here? Good news.
0: Announcements! (laughs)
1: Announcements! (laughs) Ah, So we start off with the featured podcast of the week.
0: Ah, yes. Who shall it be this week? Spin the Wheel of Podcasts.
1: Uh, Well, this week the Wheel of Podcasts came up with one of our very first editions to the network, and they are back with a new show. The original first edition podcast, the Roll for Initiative podcast, returns with Vince and he is joined by two special guests from the gaming community and chat about the various topics that are seen on Facebook and talked about in the gaming community. Timothy Branahan, writer and blogger of The Other Side blog, and Eric Tenker, the blogger from Tenker's Tavern. They talk DM tips, Kickstarter, and Patreon social media, and how and where to buy your books. Mm. It's a great podcast, great time. Vince does an amazing show with... Such a really old, literally old school topic, original first edition Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. Uh, if you're a fan of that at all, by all means, man, folks, get out there, listen to that. Uh, and you can find that and many other great podcasts at www.d20radio.com.
0: Yeah, Vince has been around forever. The Roll for Initiative podcast and others that he does, he's been at it for a long time. And, uh, and he, he, you know, he's been managing to get himself nominated for Ennies. You know, more often than not, over the course of the last ten years, can you believe this? We've almost been doing this for ten years.
1: <laughs> yeah, what? Two thousand
0: seven. Early two thousand eight. So eight, eight years plus now. Nice. Can believe that. Yep. Up
1: there.
0: It's nuts. Anyway, uh, Gamer Nation con attendees. By the way, we have to tell you this. Um, event submission is ramping up, so need to let you know. If you're planning on running anything, <clears throat> <clears throat>
1: yes,
0: <laughs> yes, Mister Phil.
1: I know, I know, I know. I got to, I got a couple things that I got to put up myself.
0: Well, your guns of Nova Rain are gonna like sell out immediately, but um, I oh, think you've goodness. got something else coming. But anyway, event submission is wrapping up next week, and that it would be like the 29th of February. So make sure and get your events in, so you can get the cred for running your games that you're going to run. Uh, the event registration process will uh, begin opening up for select events and the high gamer cred and MVGs and all that stuff at the beginning of March. We'll do that for a few days and then open up the rest of the registrations for everyone else. I would say at probably tail in the first week of March maybe um, and then that way everybody can get registered. Is that a word? It is now. All right. We just made it, it up. Perfect.
1: Yeah, I've got a couple more. I've got a couple things that I've got to put up. i just got to figure out if I have time and energy to to, uh, do my Guns of Nova Rain sequel, write that up. The main uh, module that I've still got to post on the charts will get posted probably tomorrow.
0: Ah, yes. All right, I can't wait to see that.
1: It'll be fun. It'll be fun.
0: Awesome. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Good times, yo. Yep. Yep.
1: Uh, but yeah um, Oh you know what
0: I, R- yeah. I skipped FFG stuff we did, we did
1: But uh, to be fair There really wasn't much this week Or in the past few weeks There hasn't uh, been
0: much this month I mean no, no Rebellion is on the boat But it's been on the boat For I don't know how long I think it's lost at sea
1: uh, As long as it's not lost at sea As some things were last year We should be okay I hope
0: I, I What I'm praying What I'm praying happens Is that it becomes available Before Gaming Nation Con That'd I, be awesome I don't know, you know, it'd be great if we had like an FFG employee on here later. Maybe we could ask, but we'll see.
1: <laughs> uh, but yeah, the big lead, uh, the big uh, FFG news is that Lead by Example is in your friendly local gaming store right now. I have a copy. It is awesome. It is fun. It is useful. And there are some things in there that are absolutely hilarious. Um, that book brings all there is to know about being a commander with more mass combat rules for battles on multiple fronts and a guide for creating military campaigns. Go on out, pick it up. You will not be disappointed. It's a fun and useful uh, resource for anyone who is doing an Age Rebellion game, and even other
0: campaigns. You know, last night I ran for our Patreon um, sponsors. I ran the the game, our monthly game. And, you know, um, the rest of the story... Is the module that I wrote that has mass combat in it? Yes. And um, we we got to talking about mass combat and and uh, and the fact that there was more coming and and of course now you know lead by example uh, gives you the ability to try and run battles on multiple. I can't wait to see what I haven't gotten the book yet, mm-hmm. and so I need to uh, I need to get that. But uh, aside they're from that, they're
1: not much different from the rules in operation at Audra One if you have that. Um, but there they they kind of like tuned them out uh, tuned them up. Uh, gave them a nice, good once over after getting feedback from that. I figure uh, they're they're nice and elegant now. They're fun.
0: Really? Okay. Because there was there were there were some gaps in ARTA that I didn't you know that I kind of had to make my way through. But anyway, yeah. it, it's uh, it's still it's it's all good. So yeah, uh, yeah I can't wait to see it. Uh, that being said, you guys for lots of GM tips and tricks and advice, uh, head over to d20radio.com, which of course is the best bloggerific Tidbits on the interwebs, and of course, this week is no exception. A bunch of new episodes, or I'm sorry, articles out there for your pleasure. My favorite was a GM toolkit on how to write episodic campaigns by our own GM hooly who is in Echo Base. Hello, Echo Base, by the way. What's up, Echo Base? Yeah. Uh, so, you guys check that out. Everything that's fit to print on d20radio.com, and of course, you can stay in touch with us on the Facebook and the Twitter. And all this other stuff. I'm at GM Dave. At D20 Radio is the main feed. He's at Darth GM. Yeah. Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Yes. And with that, Phil, we're ready to go. Let's get it done. Are we ready to keep the peace?
1: I think we are. Is we? But for, we're we're going to need some help to keep the peace, though.
0: We will. We will. So, you know what? We've uh, we've invited, and we will probably have other guests as well join us. Yeah, because a couple of them are running a little bit later than others. But um, we're going to dispense with kind of the regular format of the show, obviously, and we're going to bring in one of our most favoritest people in the world. Um, From Fantasy Flight Games, I might add. Of course, has his uh, imprints all over this book that we call Keeping the Peace. And um, so we'll say returning to the show here is noted FFG legend, Mr. Max Brook. Max, welcome to the show, sir.
2: Well, thank you for having me back, especially, you know, after last time. (laughs) Oh, what do you know, man? What do you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, you you forget, right? It's like you know, it's like anything. You're like, oh, that wasn't so bad, and then you know, you you do it again.
0: Oh, we never had such good reviews as we did the last time you were on the show.
2: Well, good. I'm glad to hear that.
0: <laughs> I was uh, I was looking for. I had a little, I had a little placard that I could put up that was uh, that really kind of encapsulated. How our viewers felt about what they saw that night, but uh, i can't I can't seem to find it up here, so uh yeah, I guess I won't be able to show that to you no it's yeah it's too bad really, but it's uh you know it's all good, so we're basically gonna uh we are gonna- hopefully add sterling Hershey to the mix a little bit later he's uh he's unable he's got a commitment he's unable to join us right now at eight thirty but uh hopefully he'll be able to get uh with us a little bit later and You guys know the drill um, in D20 Radio Gamer Nation land. Uh, Phil and I are going to talk questions. We're going to talk book. We're going to talk stuff about what you see right here. Keeping the peace. We've been polling
1: the forums, both our own and uh, the ones over on FFG, for questions from you, the listeners. Uh, You had a lot of them which is honestly typical for any of the career books that we get. You folks have questions about the races. You have questions about the species, the specs, the the vehicles, the rules. My God, the rules. The Um, rules. We've got them all. We've compiled them for you, and we're going to ask Max. And he's either going to answer them or he's going to say no. (laughs) (laughs) It'll be
0: fun. New force tree, new signature abilities, new, 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 new stuff. Yes, Yes, indeed. So, Max, are you ready?
2: Well, as ready as I'm going (laughs) to (laughs) be.
0: All right. Well, first, first, we bring you Opti... uh, uh, (laughs) Opium Psy. Gosh. Uh, I I was going to say Optimus Psy. Optimus Psy. Yes. Autobots! (laughs) Mm -hmm. Opium Psy. All right. So he says this when you get to discussing the art in this book and you will because zoe and her crew really brought the goods once again you have to mention page 10 it's so funny that i am sitting here and i have this is like page 9 and 10 this is like the uh it's like a it's a spread right you guys can see this oh, yes. and um and i also had page 9 open because i really i really like this piece with the uh with all the lightsaber duel, you know, it just almost evokes the sound of lightsabers clashing together. And, um, I don't know, it's just, uh, as she deflects a blaster bolt, it's just wonderful. But uh, the art is something. Uh, anyway, to keep going here, um, the cold-hearted evil Jedi leading away what we can only be, uh, only presume to be newly orphaned to children as their village burns in the distance. Their child looking back over their shoulder, knowing that the arriving heroic men and women of the Imperial military rescue teams were too late to help her. It's a great piece, so much emotion, and reinforces us why uh, we should support our beloved Emperor, Emperor Palpatine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that, that really wasn't a much of a question as much as it was just a great segue into um, how beautiful, once again, the artwork in this book is. Um, Zoe knocked it out of the park and I really dig all the artwork that came in here uh, Max, looking over it uh, did you have a particular piece that you really enjoyed or you were happy to see when it finally uh, got through, uh, through Zoe's department?
2: Well, I, I would say honestly pretty much all of them the art in this book is uh, Zoe and, and company really outdid themselves this time um, I think my favorite piece in the book uh, although there are a lot that I like Sure. Is the one on page seventy-five? Looking right at it, man. <laughs> um, that's, that's probably my favorite piece in the book. Uh, uh, yeah, so when I when I uh, you know sat down and talked about that with uh, with Zoe, you know, I, I uh, sort of assumed that the the torrent attack would be you know like a little smaller. Um uh and when you know, like when, when she was talking to me about the piece later, she was like, How how big is it? okay if this is and I was like, Well, I mean, I, they can probably get pretty big, so you know And she was like, Well, how big? And uh you know, so we, we looked at this uh, as it was developing and I was like, you know what? It's sweet. Let's do it. So we, I, I I've played Swotor, I've been in this fight. That's accurate. We we, we just That's decided to Go as big as possible, and so he, as always, did an awesome job uh, uh, directing this piece. And yeah, and that's that's I think my favorite in the book.
1: Mine too. I, like I said, I had my 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 book open right to that page. Um, I gotta say though that the second that my second favorite one is the one on page twenty three where the. That's mine.
0: Star- <laughs> <laughs> He's redirecting uh, this this little small projectile.
1: Yep. I forget what that gun is. It's it's like a flechette launcher, or a missile launcher, or a rocket launcher, or something from uh, from from uh, Dark Forces. And
2: uh, yeah, right back at you, buddy. Yep. <laughs> Some narrative use of improved reflect going on there. Uh, mm,
1: there you go. Could that 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 could be that could be used as a justification for using improved reflect on something that normally you wouldn't think could be reflectable.
0: Yeah. Uh, as as we get to talking about these art pieces, the uh, the guys in the chat room get the uh, added benefit of me opening the book so they can see the page that we're talking about.
1: What about you, Dave? What's your favorite?
0: That was 23 was my favorite. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yep. Okay. yep. 23 was my favorite. Um now <laughs> the funny thing is when you said the 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 deal on 74, there is another like you know what almost looks like uh, entering Mos Eisley or somewhere on Tatooine. Um, on 64. Yeah. Um, you know, with this, uh, I don't know what the hell that is in the background. and was uh, What's that?
1: It's a Ronto. That's a mm-hmm. Ronto?
0: Okay, that's a Ronto. All right, and you've got an Imperial shuttle-ish looking thing, and, it, you know, it's obviously a space spaceport. it's hustle bustle, but it's just, there's just something about it. This, this little man with a mane of fur, um, yeah, everyone's watching him. Yeah, I mean, he's just walking down the middle of the street, and every, I mean, yeah. So uh,
2: it's like those old westerns. Justice has come to town. Yeah, but definitely. Well, and actually, that's, that's part of it. Is one of the things is when um, so we always do a concept meeting with um, with uh, the the art director on the book, um, and so you know Zoe and I sat down and, and had the concept meeting, and we were discussing you know like well what should these sort of over like the thirty thousand foot view like what what are we trying to evoke with this book. And one of the things is well, you know, this is the, this is, this is very much the Jedi as samurai, Jedi as cowboys book. Like this is the, you know, classic cinema. You know, like hero comes into the small town, and so that was sort of where this piece came, comes from. Is the, you know, like this is that moment in the samurai movie or the or the western or what have you, where the the, the hero to the hero comes to town, and you know, like something is going to go down, and everyone kind of knows it. There's this feeling of tension. Um, so that's what we were trying to evoke there and again, Zoe just did an amazing job directing that piece
0: It almost reminds me of Tombstone when they're walking toward the OK Corral with the with the structure burning in the background and <laughs> getting ready to get it on with the cowboys mm-hmm.
1: they, they just did a great job all the artists and Zoe compiling them all just absolutely great and I really think that this does evoke that sense of this, these are the folks who will in fact keep the peace and they'll die doing it they will if, if need be
0: they will ah yes the life of a jedi guardian hmm so Phil let's take in the, let's go into chapter one shall we
1: yes let's we got a lot of questions a lot of folks who have some uh, who have an- who want answers to things that are perplexing their minds so let's get right into it uh, starting off with the book, uh, so you get through the basics of the, you know, creating the new guardian types and the new guardian moralities, which I really liked the one Mercy and Naivete. That one was
2: really, that's, that's a nice pairing right there. I yeah. That. One, one thing we wanted to do with those two was, um, uh, one of the ways we alternated these is, you know, mixing them up and matching different things together. So like, you know, we introduced some new ones, but then we also, you know, repaired some of the ones from the core book, um yeah I' noticed that and that way we can we can use the same sort of building blocks to create new stuff, so you know it's like two two different things paired together might be you know very it might suddenly cast a very different light on one than another so yeah
1: and great job doing that too. I just noticed that now in fact at, at first, I took a breeze through, but now that you mention it, I don't think independence is matched with coldness in the main book.
2: No, I don't think it is. I don't remember what it's matched with. Uh, I can pull that up.
3: Anyway, but
2: yeah, that was another thing I wanted to
1: mention there. Oh yeah, like consistency and obstinance. That's that's not the same pairing. It's definitely not the same pairing. Obstinance is with something else. But we get into the species as is part as is usual for all these books when they're announced. Folks want to know what are the three next species that whip are the- it. <laughs> <laughs> and Melora and Jedi Ronin both had similar questions. They want to know if there's a certain criteria or design intention as to why you used the three species in this book. To some, they don't immediately seem to be iconic uh, iconic Jedi Guardians or uh, for, for being Force-sensitives.
2: Yeah, definitely. So we have an overall plan um, for uh, where various species are going to go, and I, it's a somewhat fluid plan, but we have an overall plan for, like, all right, we've got, you know, these species are going to be parceled out. We sort of parcel them out by line and then by book, and we've pretty much had this since the start.
0: So where um, are the Ewoks?
2: So discussing these three... <laughs> Dave! <laughs> um. So discussing these three... Uh, I can say that you know these were in the in the plan for the guardian book from the start, and we do have some specific reasons for that. So um, personally, I know um, personally I feel that these are three perfect examples of Jedi guardians. But I'd love to hear your side. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so just for starters, why are these in Force and Destiny as opposed to elsewhere? I mean, some of them do show up elsewhere. Um, okay. We'll get to that. But uh, um, but why are these in in Force and Destiny uh, in particular? Um, well, they're all species associated with you know. Jedi there are Jedi characters in all these species. Some of them are fairly minor, but um uh you know, there's, obviously there's a uh Atlantic, um uh and an Ictachi who are on the uh Jedi Council and then there's um the Whippet whose name I don't know if I can properly pronounce who is it Yes, who is a uh it's a Jedi. So these are all species we've seen, you know, like doing stuff with lightsabers. It's you know, they're iconic in that regard. And especially for, you know, the, the first book in the line, we want to sort of reinforce that and have people be able to say, like, oh, okay, that's that guy. I, I know that species. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but uh, as to why all three of these are in the Guardian book, um, that really comes down to a lot about the, like, more nuanced things about the species. So they all sort of have different sets of – you know, they all sort of have different sets of uh, values, beliefs, and qualities that play into the Guardian's role. So, for instance, you know, like a big part of the Guardian is is conflict avoidance, and the Iktachi are sort of that in a in a nutshell. Like, if you can, you know, neutralize a threat without ever having to fight them, even better. You know, the Guardian is all about defending and protecting, and the best protection can be, you know, just preemptively dealing with a problem or avoiding it entirely. So the Iktachi does that. Um, the Guardian also has a strong leadership role, uh, and Lanix are known for for being, uh, in addition to being just implacable. Um, uh, despite or perhaps because of their size um, they're known for their uh, quality as, as leaders and that also contributes to why they appear in Lead by Example for instance um, and their military acumen and finally um, the Guardian uh, is uh, the certainly the force sensitive uh, um, career most likely to uh, opt to get hit in the face a bunch of times in lieu of party members and uh, <laughs> lipids are Extremely tough and resilient And above and beyond that they have A you know this sort of like Great capacity for survival And endurance which is part of the Guardian theme
0: It's almost like my uh, It's almost like my uh, You know predisposition toward playing Wookiees mm. This is my force sensitive Wookiee type Big burly tank. I'm, I'm not going to take any crap from you Kind of build
1: hmm Yeah. Absolutely.
0: <clears throat> so um, we had a bunch of people, including Jaeger Greta, Grita, uh, Happy Days, Raptor 200, and I'm sure an explosion on the Fantasy Flight forums about this, the Atlantic entry from Keeping the Peace, Force and Destiny, and Lead by Example, Age of Rebellion, are almost exactly alike, except Keeping the Peace starts with 100 XP, and the Indomitable removes up to two setback dice. The one from Lead by Example is 95 XP Indomitable that removes one setback dice. So, which is correct?
2: The one in Keeping the Piece is correct.
0: And that's what I thought. I mean, it wouldn't. It wouldn't. It would seem to me that the later entry would be the correct entry.
2: Um. Well, Keeping the Piece is actually the earlier entry.
0: No. Oh, but... Nice. Okay.
2: But um, that is the one that is correct. Uh, we talked it over, and that's
0: the answer. <clears throat> oh, okay. That's the oh, answer. Sir. Which order did they come out in? You, you actually wrote Keeping the Peace First? Or Lead? Oh, wait. I haven't even seen Lead. Never mind.
1: Um, yeah, lead, lead by Example just came out. I, I got yeah. it like a week ago. Oh,
0: that's right. That's right. So, yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. I'm sorry. I haven't even seen it. I don't have it yet. Duh.
1: It's okay. It happens. Sorry. <laughs> um. So, those are the species. And next up is the specializations. Three gorgeous, beautiful specializations in here. Uh, Blackbird888 wanted to know what influences inside or outside of Star Wars went into the design of the three new specializations, those being the armor, the warden, and the war leader.
2: Yeah, definitely. Well, obviously, uh, in Star Wars, we see lots of different uh, ways in which force sensitives fight I mean especially if you start to take clone Wars into account which and and rebels into account which we certainly do mm-hmm. um, and you know not everything is accounted for by just the lightsaber fighting styles and the Guardian is a place to add in some more characters who did things in different ways including you know the war leader who is a actually a range combat based um, uh, specialization for the Guardian there we have a few ranged combat specializations um, the uh, the um, hunter for instance but the uh but the you know the war leader adds that to the guardian which is kind of a nice new dimension Mm -hmm. um and then plays into the theme of the guardian by um synergizing with some of the uh you know the um buffing and protective abilities it already has so you know protecting by improving cover or helping allies get out of the way rather than you know directly intervening uh on attacks um the Warden is, uh, is certainly uh, influenced, and the the art piece makes this pretty clear. But uh, certainly influenced by you know the uh, the basis in in martial arts that you know lightsaber combat clearly has. Um, and the Warden, you know, the idea was, well, how about a how about a, a specialization that can you know fight unarmed? Um, uh, since we've played with that in in other game lines, but not so much in Force and Destiny.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, uh there's also, um, obviously some uh well, there's the the actual bad cop talent. Um uh, so there was some idea about uh working in the sort of, you know, um, uh I'm trying to think of the best way to put it, but you know, the, the aggressive, intimidating figure that uh, a force sensitive certainly could be to especially to people who aren't force sensitive if they're you know yeah. Their butts
0: there is a lot of psychological warfare with that warden tree.
2: Yeah, one of the ideas is, one of the things we wanted to play with with the warden was the idea that you could have somebody who would generate conflict but didn't necessarily do it just by killing people. Um, you know, a figure who is somewhat uh, darker than their comrades but isn't necessarily just a murderer or whatever. And in fact, the warden is a pretty good way to build a, a character who is a non-lethal fighter. Um, but, uh, the Warden also uses fear as an asset. And so that's sort of that walking the dark side line, right? Where you've got, you know, like maybe you're doing it for a good reason, but you're still using kind of an evil tool. So it's an interesting thing to create. And it's a fun conflict to sort of build into the tree itself. Um,
1: he and, convinces uh,
2: you to, he convinces you to play nice, even if he has to twist your arm to do it. Literally and figuratively. Yes. Yes. <laughs>
0: I love. What's wrong with that? I love baleful gaze. Yeah, you're gonna earn conflict, but man, you're gonna make yourself hard to hit.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, baleful gaze is a is a fun one. Although I think my favorite talent in that tree is actually overbalance. That's a mean one.
1: That's an absolute mean one. <laughs> Stagger
0: the attacker, maybe because he rolled a despair or three threat.
2: <laughs> and we kind of want we were playing there with like, okay, so you know, if you don't, if you are fighting unarmed. You know, you're not going to have a lightsaber in hand, which means you can't, uh, imp- you know, you can't parry, improve parry. So what can you do with those same, you know, especially with the threat and despair you might generate with Baleful Gaze, what can you do with that? Well, overbalance is a nice thing to really give you some control over the combat, which is really what the Warden is all about. is like maintaining control over the battlefield and control over enemies. Right. Yeah. Oh, and,
0: and the way the tree is structured, you have to have overbalance to get to Baleful Gaze, so... We can go the other way too. Oh yeah, I guess you could go you down and go then up back up. The override, but yeah, you'd
2: probably end up going through there. Yeah,
0: it's That's so yeah, that's <laughs> so expensive to go down and then back up.
1: Not not just that, but overbalance and you know, going through overbalance. Why wouldn't you?
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you get your force rating first if you go down and then back up.
1: But true, true. Uh, so getting sticking with the warden. Darth Pseudonym has a question, uh, and starts off by saying, I love the Warden spec. The concept of a Force-powered martial artist is one that I've liked since way back in the early Star Wars gaming days, and this is a great expression of it. Still, I'm curious why the Warden has that auto-conflict talent, just like the Aggressor. Obviously, you can play the cl- either class either way, but in many ways, the Warden seems like the light-side reflection of the Aggressor's clearly dark-side influence. Because of that, I was surprised to find that he's just as prone, talent-wise, to embracing inherently dark knowledge. Is there a particular
2: design concept behind this? Hmm. So, thematically, um, as I mentioned earlier, we wanted to play with the idea that the Warden isn't, you know, isn't necessarily a thoughtless killer, but the Warden is using fear in a very, you know, like, functional sense, and Mm -hmm. that is kind of a dark side thing, even if you're doing it for a good reason. Um... So you know, the warden has this sort of dark side to it. Interestingly, I, th- I think it, it, it's interesting that um, Darth pseudonym mentions that the the warden and the aggressor as parallels spe- or as reflections. Because I actually see them working really nicely together. Um, oh God, do they? they. That's the first thing really I well. First um, thing so- I thought, man. First thing I thought when I
1: saw the two specs.
2: I actually think in some ways the warden is kind of where the aggressor could go the aggressor is sort of unthinking violence right and the warden is thinking violence yeah um Mm -hmm. so you could definitely have a character who like starts out as an aggressor and then as they get more experienced they realize that like oh actually like fear is a much better weapon than you know just brute strength and i can kind of like evolve to you know like use these use this asset i have uh more effectively and you know like instead of just instead of you know just uh, just hitting people and making them afraid of, uh, afraid of me, I can talk to them and make them afraid of me much more effectively, you know? Um, and obviously with uh, Prey on the Weak, the two play really well together.
1: I have two PCs in one of my games, both of them. Two PCs who went warden, one of them started as an aggressor. Mm. So they went right into that.
0: Hmm. Uh, may I interrupt for a moment? Yeah, definitely. You may. So... Um, we have um, another gentleman now returning to the show after uh, an absence of merely weeks. <laughs> uh, a gentleman who needs no introduction, although he has his paw prints on basically everything Star Wars RPG since the Big Bang or God Spent His Seven Days, whichever you choose to believe. Mr. Sterling Hershey. Hello. Hello.
2: Hi, Sterling. Hey, hey. Sterling.
4: How are you guys doing?
0: Awesome. Doing
2: oh. you well. Know
1: questions getting answers
0: yeah exactly you know and that was uh i think our our, our next question came from austin Catan, and he said when is a pdf going to whoa, whoa whoa wait a second that is not supposed to be in there how did that get through
1: <laughs> actually the question from austin Catan is i have a question revolving around the design choices for the war leader in a real way it seems to be a better leadership spec than the tactician before it what went into the planning for this spec that has the talents so capable of supporting a squad, PCs or NPCs.
2: So one of the things about the Ward Leader um, is actually, um, although it does have leadership skill, it doesn't really have any talents that play directly off of leadership. Uh, unlike the Tactician, which does have some, which has more support for that, and then has even more support for that in its career. Hmm. Um, The war leader, the the idea that went into it was the war leader is not actually the most charismatic person. The war leader isn't the, like, squad sergeant who gets everyone, you know, to do something, either because they fear them or they really, you know, want to, um, you know, want to impress them. The the war leader is the person who knows where everybody needs to be at a given time. Um, So it's more about actually sort of, like, cunning and on the spot, you know, like... uh, Sort of on the spot tactical decisions versus like you know inspiration. Uh, the the war leader is might well not be the like face of the party, um, and the war leader might not actually be very good at like you know leadership activities. The, the war leader might not be the most inspiring or the or the most uh, you know charismatic. Yeah. But but when the war leader tells you to go somewhere, eventually you figure out that it's probably a good idea because the last eight times you know like he's been right right um so it's a little bit of a different take on on leadership um, yeah. and a little bit of a different take on that and it plays nicely with the guardian overall because the Guardian already has a, a pretty solid um you know uh tree for just straight up uh you know inspiration yeah. um uh, in the uh, peacekeeper um and so this is a this is an alternate to that.
0: And so I mean, it's funny how you you know you bring up inspiration and and you know the the real the key differences to me is that this isn't about giving extra actions or granting upgrades on your next check or you know the the control aspects of being a leader. This is more positioning, planning, leading by example, almost you know with grit and suppressing fire and things of that nature. So it is a little bit different.
3: Hmm.
2: It's also got the—I mean—to differentiate it from the tactician, it obviously has the whole force-sensitive streak, which is you know sort oh, of a double-edged it. sword because on the one hand you get some really nice stuff. I mean, not shooting your allies when they're engaged is pretty nice. Yeah, uh, prophetic aim is is you know well worth it in my experience. But on the other hand, you're giving up more ranks of just like solid leadership talents that the tactician gets. So,
0: so I'll tell it's, you a story. Trade off. Sorry, I'll tell you a story. Last night when I was running the Patreon game. There is a, I'm going to spoil a little bit of the image here, there is a uh, portion in which that uh, two Imperial sergeants take a hostage, and that hostage is uh, the ex-girlfriend of one of the characters. And uh, they still have a thing for one another, it's just that they were separated because of diplomatic corps and things like that. So he's holding her as kind of a human shield, and he goes charging at the, at the, uh, at the, the, the sergeant. And actually, he the sergeant is not holding her as a human shield yet, but they are engaged. And he goes charging in at the sergeant and rolls a despair. Yeah, he almost killed her. So, yeah, being able to not hit <laughs> the engaged person is great. Nice.
2: But, yeah, just I, I just opened up the book, and looking at the tactician, I mean it's a it's a pretty solidly different tree i mean field commander as you mentioned is all about action economy and right uh you know um natural leader i mean like the tactician is a solid face character and the war leader could be but you're not getting a lot of talent support for that um you know you would be relying mostly on your your characteristic and skill
0: right okay so moving on sterling anything to add there by the way Okay, all right, awesome. <laughs> a man A few words, Sterling Hershey. Away Put Your Weapons comes in and says, or Away Put Your Weapon. He says, the new talents are way cool. What is your favorite new talent addition? He goes on to say, I really love Precision Strike with the idea that a character can be that good with or without a weapon. Let's say Mara Jade, who obviously has this talent, or she did until she was summarily dismissed by Disney, (laughs) succeeds masterfully on a lightsaber attack, no advantage, just lots of success, and the damage takes her opponent over his wound threshold, causing that opponent to immediately suffer a critical injury. Can the precision strike talent be applied to this critical injury?
2: So I was just taking a look at that, and uh, yes, it can. There you go. Um... In terms of what my favorite talent is, I already mentioned uh, Overbalance in the Warden, and I think that's uh, probably my favorite talent in the book as well, although I also I do quite like Supreme Armor Master because it gives you the reason to wear armor against lightsabers.
1: Yeah, that's just crazy awesome. Oh, wow.
0: To so reduce the uh, critical by 10 as an in incidental?
2: Ten per point of your soak.
0: Per point of soak, yeah. I, of course, I didn't read the rest of the talent. <laughs> wow, wow. Now so you're that... talking at least, you know, for most characters, you're talking at least a forty or maybe fifty point reduction there.
1: That's what I wanted to ask: Is it by your character's soak or the soak granted by the whatever armor you're wearing?
2: It is by your character's soak. Ah.
1: Uh, <laughs> Dude, I know some characters out there who out of the box can reduce that, who could uh, knock that down
2: by 70 or 80 points.
0: Wow. <laughs>
2: now, admittedly, you're paying three strain to do that. So, man, you're gonna pass out pretty quickly. <laughs> well, if you but that yeah. Like a boss, yeah.
0: That's better than losing an arm.
2: <laughs> Reinforce item is another one that's interesting in that vein. Yeah, yeah. I was I was looking at that one too.
1: That's that's a solid talent. Uh, granting uh, cortosis quality to your armor as long as two force dice are remain remain committed. I, at first, when I first when I first read that talent, I thought that it was like the ultimate evolution of or counterpoint to parry. Ooh. Someone with like tons of ranks of parry. I like that you've also paired that with. If you want to keep this going round to round, you will be eating three strain each turn. You keep that going.
2: So it's interesting. It actually, you know, we did the we did all the math out, and we, we checked all the scenarios and such in our testing. And you know, one of the things we came out to is like, so you know, if you're if you're only taking one attack, it's the same as parry, basically. Mm-hmm. For most, for a character optimized to use it, you're getting about the same amount. of, You know, if you're taking one attack per round, you're getting about the same amount of mitigation. Right. um you're paying more strain than a character who has supreme Parry. so a sourao defender for instance is spending a lot less strain to get that same mitigation sure um uh, but if you're getting hit multiple times per round with lightsabers it's better
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, so it's it's an interesting trade-off um, but yeah it it's uh it can keep you alive for a while but you're gonna pass out really quickly if you uh, if you just leave it on all the time right, right.
0: So what 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 uh, what feedback or have you gotten feedback from the min-maxing community on Tinkerer?
2: Well, Tinkerer is not new. Um, Tinkerer is an edge of the Empire. Um, Tinkerer is extremely potent, but mm-hmm. it's been around since the beginning of the game. It's not overpowered.
0: No. But as a you know, as a Jedi, have you seen anybody try to upgrade equipment that was really not meant for upgrades?
2: Not particularly. Honestly, like the, you could already do you could already add hard points to items with the Artisan's intuitive improvements. Um, and uh, so I don't think it's been too, too crazy. Too I haven't seen anything about it. Okay. Is there anything you've seen?
0: No, no, no. no. I was just curious. I, I personally, I'm not usually one of those. In fact, the min-max guys that want to add all kinds of crap to their weapons usually just make me frown. and um, And I have a tendency to break their weapons but uh, you know like you do uh, yeah you know it's one of those things but uh no, no no i haven't uh i haven't run across it at all it was just it was just something that just kind of popped in my mind when i saw it
2: mm, definitely yeah and we try to introduce you know talents from the previous game lines you know we try to cross pollinate at times too when it's appropriate so for instance instead of inventing a new talent does the same thing as tinkerer you know we Bring Tinkerer over, and then it gets reprinted, sure. of course, but in the book because it's not in the core book. But you know, same Tinkerer,
1: right,
4: right.
2: Sterling, were there any talents in the,
1: introduced in this book that piqued your interest?
4: Actually, uh, not so much a talent, but um, back on the Warden page, the uh, the idea that certain talents have a conflict cost. Yes. Yeah, you know, that. Uh, yeah, that, that that's an interesting idea. I think uh, it really adds to you know the danger of of learning some of these although i think only one of them has it yeah previously yeah, yeah. now there's two yeah the one thing i like about that
1: in the uh, getting back to that in the warden is just by knowing it you you get a point of conflict just by having it it doesn't mean you're dark side it just means that your progression up the morality
2: scale <laughs> is one foot in the hole already that's all and one of the things we wanted to play with in the warden as opposed to the aggressor one of the ways it is a little different is the warden actually getting that talent might make you better at defeating people without killing them which might lower your conflicts or i mean so like it's one of those things where you're going to be you're potentially going to be more in the middle with a warden you're not likely to be you're not as likely to be a paragon or you won't get there as quickly but you're also less likely to have to do something that causes your character a lot of conflict sure
1: introduced in this chapter as well are the two signature abilities for the Guardians and uh, Away Put Your Weapon and Ken Dick had a couple questions about those. Um, do you have any cool stories about how Faded Duel or Unmatched Heroism was used in a game? Either playtest that you can tell us about or since the book's been out. Uh, bonus points if you were the player that used <laughs> either of them.
2: So I did in a test uh, have a character who took um, uh, Unmatched Heroism um, I don't have any really cool stories about it, unfortunately. Um, uh, it was pretty useful, um, but I think he only had it for, like, one session in that particular campaign before it ended. Um, uh, I mean, it certainly made getting in the way of, uh, attacks a, a lot easier, as intended, um... And uh, using it was definitely one of those things where, you know, when we were testing that ability and when I was looking at it, I was like, oh, you know, that's really potent. Um, And then when I actually put it on the table, it's like, oh, no, getting hit a lot still hurts, you know. (laughs) Like, yeah, I'm glad that my character can do this. He would do this. You know, he's willing to to put his life on the line for his comrades. But, yep, that still really hurts. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess I can say I was pleased with the uh, verisimilitude of using it in that uh, it wasn't like he, you know, was able to get in the way of attacks and not uh, not suffer for it. Nice. It was appropriate. Um, uh, but, no, I, I actually have not personally used uh, Fated Duel on a character, though I, I hope to someday. Uh, and I especially hope that when it happens... There will be a point where my character goes over his wound threshold, but it's still up because of one of the stand firm upgrades, and then as soon as the duel ends, he immediately passes out. <laughs> That's the way you have to do it. It's kinda like, like a boss.
0: Like Maximus.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Moving on to the next introduction to the book, uh, that of a new force power. Um uh, L- uh Nerd. Lord of the Rings nerd had the question What was the intention behind the new power in the book, and is it meant to balance out certain powers that could be abused from the main book? Example is the sense power with certain upgrades.
2: Um, no, it isn't really meant to be a nerf to existing powers or anything like that. Um, what it is meant to do is create a force power that fits with the themes of the Guardian. Um, and that was definitely a challenge. When I sat down, you know, when we were talking about the concept of this book, we decided, well, we should do a new force power. You know, there's lots of new things we haven't explored yet. Um, but what we're, what is a guardian's force power? You know, how does a guardian use the force to defend? And how do they do it in a way that doesn't step on the toes of protect? Um, and so, you know, we, after some discussion, the, the team came up with the idea that we should do a force power that defends against force powers. You know, the guardian is one of the most... Other than maybe the warrior, the Guardian is one of the most iconically, you know, like, um, you know, Jedi Knights of the, you know, Force-sensitive careers we have. Um, And, you know, the Jedi Knights we see in the films, they might use things to augment their abilities, but they generally aren't, you know, chucking around energy blasts or what have you. Sure. Um, That's usually more of a... uh, more of a dark side ability, but even even amongst, you know, the Jedi, we do see people who focus on fighting more with the Force than with uh, than with a lightsaber, but you know, it it, it seemed kind of like an obvious route to go, that you have a way to protect yourself against those negative Force powers you're going to deal with. Um, because, you know, if your GM is, is worth their salt, <laughs> they're going to throw somebody with Unleash at you every now and then, and uh, if you don't have a way to deal with that, and you don't have a way to you know, if you don't have a way to deal with that, you may, you may wish you did. Um, obviously, protect is one way to do that, but protect re- requires a really high force rating to be effective. And one of the goals of suppress was that it was something that even someone with force rating one would find worthwhile. So that's why it has a pretty low um, commit effect that you can get, you know, useful effect out of right away. Um, it has uh, a second. Commit effect that again works if you only have one force rating. Um, So it's really like, what what am I going to do? Let's imagine you know I built a a Sarayu defender who doesn't have anything really to commit his force dice to, um, which I did at one point. Um, You know I want to look when I'm looking at a force power, I want something that I am going to be able to use reliably and be effective with. And so suppress was sort of the answer to that. Of like, okay, this is a way for me to protect myself and my allies. Reliably from force powers, and maybe it doesn't, you know, like completely negate them. In fact, in most cases, it won't. But even reducing the damage a little bit can be really, you know, on an offensive force power can be really nice. And sometimes it'll make a miss.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, you reduce success, or you know, flat out. Um, well, yeah, I mean that—that's what you're basically doing, right? You're 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 adding a um, you're adding a failure to every single check, maybe even two.
1: Yeah, because all the things that can really mess your character up coming at you from an, uh, an opposing force user involve opposed skill checks, and right. even if they generate 15 power force points and are able to do this giant 20-point damaging attack with crit 1 <laughs> and will cause burn for 10 rounds thereafter, if they fail that skill check to hit you, nothing.
0: Have a nice day.
2: It was well, also a, a nice, uh, nice subtle reminder of the fact that that opposed skill check is supposed to happen. Yep, for the, the Force Resistance sidebar.
0: I, l- I like the fact that you basically are able to only put, you only need to put 40 points in, into this thing to really to really have a nice power. You can extend it to, uh, what, like a medium range and affect, have a duration and adding two fails. And, and you know, so I, I like it. I, I really, really do.
1: It really is that niche power, like you say, where it, it's for someone who needs to close and hose and, and turn da- and turn an enemy force wizard off.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, and then the second control power where you're physically reducing the amount of pips that they generated.
1: <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that, Max. Um, activating, now there's two different commits here. Commit one for the duration
2: and commit one for the control. Mm-hmm. Can you do those as part of the same action to activate the power? Um. So one yes, the other no. Um. Uh. You can do the um. Uh. So the one of them reads um, the power gains the ongoing effect. Commit after successfully activating the basic power, so that you can do as a, as part of that. Uh, the other one does not have that language. I believe it just reads commit one or more. Yeah. So that's the normal commit requirement. The other one has a special timing.
1: Ah. Uh, okay. Okay. So you can't activate both the duration and the control when you activate this power as one action. It would require two but actions?
2: The control would be a separate thing to activate. Um, okay. The duration you can do when you use the power. So you can use the, basically, you know, the duration allows you to flip the power into on mode instead of having to re-up it every turn. Um, but the control oh. is a separate thing.
1: Right. Oh, but I see
2: what the, I see The duration what you're now. only goes off after you've used the, successfully used the basic power. The
1: control is just commit
2: and go. Yeah, but, but that, that one's as an action, and then the other one is as, a, is as part of these, immediately after, as part of the successful activation of the base power. Gotcha. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: one last, I think we have one last question about this. A uh, question from Jedi Ronin about the suppressed force power duration upgrade. Does committing the force die happen as part of activating the base power or as a, a part no. of its own separate action? <laughs> yes, we just answered that. Great. We just awesome. did.
0: Yes. See, I love it, Jedi Ronin, Thank you very much. We didn't mean to steal your thunder. It's just that I was getting all about that suppress uh,
1: Force tree. Yeah. yeah. Uh, bringing us to chapter two. Unless Sterling has any, uh, Sterling, do you have anything to add about uh, anything we've talked about in chapter one?
4: Um. Well, on suppress, you know, I like, I just like the thematic aspects of it because when you see force users fighting or, or battling each other in Clone Wars uh, and in the movies, but maybe more so in Clone Wars um, and ex- actually in and, uh, Episode 3 uh, you just get the sense that, that there are times where yes, someone's trying to use the Force power against somebody else and it's not working like they expected uh, You know, uh, Anakin and Obi-Wan trying to push each other around and not right. basically going up against each other you can kind of see thematically where that's going so it's, it's nice to see it here
1: Awesome.
0: Yes, yes.
1: Which brings us to Chapter 2, titled The Swords of Justice. Mm. Literally. As there are, in fact, new lightsabers in Chapter 2. Sure. Uh, we got a lot of questions here, so we're just going to dive right into them. All right. Uh, and we'll start with Revanchist 7 who asks, What was the decision-making process for giving a, the double-bladed lightsaber Pike the stun for quality? Was it to ad- address some mechanical niche, or is there a lower reason behind the decision? Also, is it safe to assume attachments and mods for the saber cost the usual amount? At, or is it like the double-bladed saber where the
2: price is doubled? Mm. So to that second part, it actually specifies that in the entry. Um, when purchasing attachments for this weapon, including crystals, each attachment costs double the listed price. This represents the fact that the double-bladed lightsaber, blah, 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 blah. blah. Maybe he just missed that. Um, so it contains the same language as the double bladed lightsaber. Sure. Um, as to why it has the stun quality, um, well, that's because this is the Temple Guard lightsaber pike, um, mm-hmm. and the Jedi Temple Guard—you uh, know—one of their char- obviously they were in charge of protecting the Jedi Temple. One of the—you know—we have their armor in this book, um, and one of their charges was you know like <clears throat> taking people, ho- you know, like taking people uh, captive alive when needed and such. You know, we know that they. They were employed to do that on various occasions, you know. Um, so subduing people without killing them was an important potential part of their job. Um, so even though, you know, they are likely to hurt somebody with a lightsaber, probably pretty badly even, it does mean that they have more capacity to bring people down, you know, without killing them than other uh, other Jedi weapons, at least by default. Um, the other nice thing about it is that it... Uh, this is purely mechanical, but it creates an interesting dynamic with uh, with Perry, where if they can bleed out their uh, their opponent's strain faster, they'll actually strain threshold faster. They will actually, you know, have a, a big advantage. Um, but mostly, it's to reflect the fact that they their role was really as you know, like peacekeepers and enforcers for the Jedi Order, rather than like you know executioners. Right. I like
0: Absolutely. it. So then we have a what is it Geiger streak or Giger streak? I don't know. I think it's Giger streak. Giger streak, and Donovan Morningfire. I don't Here think we go. I don't think Donovan's in the chat tonight. I haven't seen him. No. The Saurian crystal is marked as requiring four hard points to install, rather than the standard two for a Kyber crystal. This is reflected in both its description and the purchasing table 2 seven. Is this crystal truly unique in how much space it takes up, or is this perhaps a typo? If it's not a typo, one way of abusing the system would be to use the cyclic crystal array with a two hardpoint cost kyber crystal, then install the saurian crystal at zero hardpoint cost. Your thoughts?
2: Well, I'm not sure I really consider that an abuse, for starters, um, but uh, the sorian crystal's uh, hardpoint requirement is correct. Um, wow. It is four. Um, uh, if you want to use a cyclic crystal array to fit it in, uh, more effectively, that is a little strange, but it's not the weirdest thing that one can do with the hardpoint system either. Um, uh, it means that that's a slightly more efficient way to do that, but you're paying 1500 credits for no extra benefit by default. So, <laughs> I mean, if you want to do that nuts to you, you know, like, but yes,
1: Interesting. And is that simply just because it adds so much to a a sort of staple talent for most lightsaber combatants?
2: That's part of it. Um, It's also uh, another way to uh, differentiate it from some of the others mechanically. It makes it a different choice. You know, suddenly you're not just choosing based on cost and effect. You also have to consider, like, okay, did I want other modifications? If I do, do I want to pay even more to get this thing in at the normal size (laughs) with the cyclic crystal array? So it creates more choices. it creates more interesting options for the players. Um, but uh, but yeah, part of it is because it has does obviously grant a really potent ability.
0: I get it. Hey Sterling.
4: Yes, I have a question. Okay,
0: and only because I didn't know what parts of the books that you the, this book that you worked on.
4: There's an easy answer to that. Chapter three, except the armor. Well, okay. had a hunch that's what you worked on. <clears throat>
0: Good answer. Good
1: answer. Good answer.
3: <laughs>
0: so, Dono follows back up with another question and says, having the option to be able to swap between two different crystals seems a pretty nice little perk. More so if it's been modified to hold an additional crystal, so only needing two hard points to install this seems a bit on the cheap side, especially if you've got the GM kit rules to potentially build a saber hilt with additional hard points as well as the tinkerer talent. uh, See, there's that Tinkerer talent. It almost sees this attachment should cost at least three hard points so that if put into a basic lightsaber, that's all you've got. Also, what would happen if a PC with a basic lightsaber and has an Ilum crystal as its default installs a cyclic crystal array attachment with a saurian crystal as the alternate? It seems that with the CC array... It'd be a cheap way to get the perks of the Soaring crystal, as they wouldn't have to pay the full four hard points that they'd have to if it was a primary crystal. And still have the option of a saber crystal that's more geared toward damage output, such as the crate Dragon Pearl or Mephite crystal. Mephite. Mephite. I
2: don't know. So yeah, that second one is pretty much covered by the previous answer, which is that, yeah, you could do that. Um, but you'd be, and you know, again, you're paying a lot of credits and credits to do this, and you're giving up other hard point options um uh the uh as to the first part um it is intentionally two hard points um we uh i think it may have been testing been more but we determined that you know as much as it's a nice trick um the difficulty of acquiring multiple kyber crystals is (laughs) so high Mm -hmm. that uh you know, like, honestly, it doesn't need to be that hard to get the cyclic crystal array, because you're going to have to work your butt off to get two kyber crystals to use in it anyway. Two different ones, yeah. Um, yeah, and having two of the same kyber crystal doesn't really benefit you, so, I mean, I suppose you could mod them differently in theory, but in the end, you want to get all the mods for both of them, so... Right. It, it's, it's one of those things where, like, the difficulty of... It's, it's the same reason a lightsaber hilt is relatively cheap. It... It, the kyber crystal is the important part of the lightsaber and it's incredibly difficult to acquire. And if the GM's throwing lots of kyber crystals at you, then I mean that's sort of, you know, like that it's gonna be an interesting campaign. Um right. but but yeah, kyber crystals are meant to be difficult to acquire, and they are the sort of like point of complexity and difficulty for any plan involving the cyclic crystal array. Makes
0: sense. I sir. I got it. I'm with that.
1: So our next question comes from Raptor 200, and I wanted—I I really wanted to put this question in because it needs some clarification. Um, how does jury rigging work in conjunction with the cyclic crystal array? Does it apply to only one crystal, or does it reapply every time the crystal is switched for a different one? And he goes on to ask about, um, you know, what happens if I had a credit dragon pearl and I applied it to vicious, so that's now vicious 5, vicious 4 plus 1 from jury-rigged, or then you get a sapphith gem and use it to get breach 3 instead of breach 2 plus 1 from jury-rigged. Raptor 200, jury-rigged doesn't work the way you describe in your question. Jury-rigged would have zero effect on vicious or breach uh, because it increases the damage of a weapon by 1, Decreases the advantage cost of its critical or decreases the cost of any single other effect by one to a minimum of one. You don't use it to increase the rating of any weapon's quality with joy rigged other than the damage.
0: You mean you mean you mean oh man. You mean <laughs> so I can't thing- I can't use that for linked four? Correct. Ooh. Now
1: you could actually use it on you could you, you could actually use it on linked to reduce the cost of activating linked, but that's so what it does. It affects the activation cost. It doesn't affect the quality rating. Is that correct? That, that is that correct, Max? Yes, that is correct. Very good, uh, Dave. You wanna uh, talk to us about what eBack and Decorus had a question about?
0: eBack, eBack. We'll Reminds me of Sleestack for some reason. I'm not entirely sure why. But anyway, he back into chorus, yes. He says, um, what was the thought, or they say, what was the thought behind the ghost as it appears in Keeping the Peace? What was the thought process in making a Silhouette 5 ship? It doesn't seem to be bigger than many Silhouette 4 ships on the show. In Rebels, we see the ghost go through some very high-stress maneuvers. It's surprising to see it as a Silhouette 5 ship. If this is accurate, not a typo. Was there intention for it to be played with a smuggler who can treat its silhouette as lower to perform evasive maneuvers?
2: All right. So this has been a discussion, a subject of much discussion, so I can probably clear some things up here. Uh, It is supposed to be Silhouette 5. It is Silhouette 5 because it is enormous. I mean, we've seen it next to a Corellian Corvette, and it is a sizable, you know, portion of that Corvette's... uh, corvette's size um it's a really big ship um so silhouette 5 is appropriate for it it wouldn't be appropriate for it to be silhouette 4 with that said this is also not the ghost we're presenting this is the vcx 100 uh the ghost is highly modified for instance the vcx as we presented doesn't have the uh phantom attack shuttle because that's not a standard feature Mm -hmm. um what does the Ghost have? Uh, I don't know, but I would imagine that as the y- standard YT-1300 would not really accurately reflect the Millennium Falcon, the uh, standard VCX-100 uh, would not accurately reflect uh, the, the, the Ghost either. Um, right. One of the big things is the weapons. Um, the weapons were brought way down from what the Ghost is listed as having. Again, because we know the Ghost is heavily customized, because the Ghost's weapons would be terrifying on a ship this size. <laughs> um, I mean, the ghost is blowing up Gozanti's. You know, the ghost is uh, the ghost is a, a scary ship. Um, and the Vcx one hundred as presented here is not is not the ghost with all of its you know like various custom features. I mean, we know that Sabine has modified the ship like crazy. We know that it was already non standard before then. So the ghost is is you know pretty special and not covered exactly by this. If you wanted to build the ghost, you would want to apply a lot of attachments to this and you know. Probably a couple talent trees here and there. Probably some talent trees, yeah. Um, as it being able to dogfight, um, such a, uh, perform maneuvers such as gain the advantage, I'm not really sure it ever does that in Rebels. While it does fly very... While Hera d- is a great pilot and does fly really well, I mean, they're not avoiding getting shot most of the time by fighters. No, they're just a taking kids um, yeah. and then blowing said fighters back up. So, I mean... Is, does Hera have? Does Hera likely have every piloting tree we've created, including Starfighter Ace? Even though she isn't force sensitive, yes. Um, <laughs> does that mean she can do some crazy stuff in a ship? Yes. Uh, but you know, like the Ghost is not—you know—it's not a—it's you know, not a, a dogfighting craft. It's a—it's a freighter, and yeah. it's scary in combat, but not because it can—you know—gain the advantage on Tie fighters.
1: Yeah. It. it really just sits there, and the, the gunners—it it really is acting like the B seventeen that they—they they say that they—that they, uh, Dave Filoni and the rest of the rebels' crew says that they designed mm-hmm. it after.
4: Yeah, it sits was, there. That's what I was just cool. thinking too, especially right down to the chin turret. I mean, that's, oh yeah, that's right off b of B seventeen.
1: It—it sits there. It—it it takes direct hits from light cruisers. You—you you watch it in the combat; it's not dodging. Now the Falcon would be pirouetting around those blasts left right. and right. But the Ghost is—is. Is, certainly maneuvering out of its way to take as few hits as possible, but it's it's powering through them.
4: Well and if you think about the how sort of how thick the ghost is, I mean it's multi basically multi level, right? Right. And the, something oh, like yeah. a Falcon is not. No, that's true as well. That's true as yeah, well. Yeah,
0: you've just got the basic smuggling compartments and that's really it.
4: Which
1: reminds me, Max, thank you so much for getting this book for getting this this ship into this book. And I can't tell you how hard it was Having playtested this book and seeing folks on the forums for months going, oh, what, the "Where's VCX the goose? Where are the stats for the VCX freighter?" Like, <laughs> I can't say anything.
2: Well, I I was gonna say it's a little uh, little hint of how uh, you know how Sterling and uh, and I live our lives. <laughs> <Okay>.
1: Pretty much. <laughs> Just looking at the forums and go, I can't answer anything. I don't even know why I'm here. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, it's always fun to see to see comments, or and this is going way back too. But see to see comments about, hey, where where is this going to show up? And it's like, well, it was written six months ago, and you'll probably see it in another six months or so. Uh, that kind of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. uh, or somebody um, wanting to know more about how a certain power works, or what what the, what's the next book going to be? You know, it's it's it could be fun.
0: By the way, if you're uh, scoring at home, VCX 100 Light Freighter is on page 63 when you get your book.
2: Indeed.
4: And the next
0: question we've got is going to be on 61.
2: Very good. Yes, so uh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, okay.
0: So, yeah, Shadow Guard and SoCal Gamer are like, what's up with the Mitil Starfighter? Or Mitil, I don't know how you pronounce it. Is the concussion missile really meant to be single shot, limited ammo one? Is it meant to be silhouette two instead of silhouette three? What's with all the questions, guys? Come on, just take it for what it is.
2: <laughs> well, I, I understand it because it's a little weird, you know. Like this is strange, but yes, the detail is tiny. Um, I, I mean, it is way smaller than a starfighter should probably be. Um, but that's the thing that makes it interesting, right? Mm-hmm. So yes, it is. It is supposed to be silhouette two. It is so small. That, you know, when we were deciding, well, we know it has a concussion missile launcher. How many should it have? We discussed it with the team, and we said, let's give it one. Like, Yeah, there's no
0: room know, for any more. There's
2: no room for more. Uh, and that's really interesting, too, because then if you're flying one, you have to really want to shoot that concussion, concussion missile to fire it. Because, sure. you know, you're not getting another unless you go back to your ship and refuel, right? So... It's the Fiat five hundred or the smart car of Star Wars
1: Starfighters. <laughs> <laughs> this little thing's just buzzing around.
0: <laughs> Do you know of any art anywhere for this little guy?
1: Um It's out there. Um it it's it's out there. Wikipedia. Um, yeah, Wikipedia. You'll you'll see it. It's this little hook winged thing. Hmm. Actually it almost looks like the it looks like a very angularized version of the uh rebel crest if I remember it correctly. Interesting. Well, that pretty much brings us to the end of chapter two, and which brings us to the, what I like to call the chapter of
4: Sterling.
0: The chapter of Sterling. <laughs> uh,
4: Sterling. I see we have a lot of questions about my parts of the chapter. True, but <laughs> honestly,
1: I'm glad that we have you on because this has been one of the most entertaining chapters to read that I've had in a while. Uh, there's just a lot in here for folks to use, and I really, really dig the iconic Guardian stories stuff. That that entire section where the you know, mastering of a technique, and monster slaying, and wanted to come up with. I wanted to ask you a question. Um, where did the learning as you go thing come from?
4: Um, let's see. Well, I th- I think it was just as we were looking talking about Guardians and training and 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 all this stuff. Yeah, I don't know. It just um, it seems like a lot of those kinds of more iconic stories had this element of somebody trying to use an ability that they didn't really know yet mm-hmm. uh, or, or or were just basically learning as you went. And we didn't really have that. And so... Because um, it's a neat set thing. of optional rules. I, I really dig that, and I really like
1: the options that you've got for, okay, if you want to try using this power when you haven't spent everything you need to on it, you upgrade checks you take strain you you uh, gain double the conflict from spending dark side points it's it's really it's really tight that's really is the only thing I can think of for it
4: yeah I mean it's really uh, almost um, you know we see the see these movies where people are I mean, learning to be the kung fu fighter or you know whatever it is um, you know you get to see them go through this process of training and learning these little bits and then you see them screw up or have great success when they maybe they shouldn't, as the story progresses. And so, if the GM and the players are trying, are wanting to set up a story like that, this can really uh, add to it. Uh, I wouldn't suggest using it for every every skill or power out there, but uh, in 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 certain situations, it can it can add uh, to a game. To Make a, it to to something campaign. that's meaningful, is what you mean. Hmm. Uh, yes.
0: So I mean, kind of like a little girl who hadn't really used the force before and trying to call out to a saber that's. Stuck in the stuck in the earth somewhere and being called to by a guy who obviously has more force use ability than she does. Right on. Uh yeah, I don't. I'm just talking off the top of my head. I don't know if I've ever seen that anywhere. <laughs> just just spitballing there. Yeah, just spitballing. <laughs>
2: yeah, did... I think that I think that'd be a good scene. Very good scene.
1: <laughs> How did the design for this chapter come down? Like, what is it that you def- that, that uh, Max and Sterling you got that you guys definitely wanted to have in here and have structure for?
3: Ooh.
2: Well, I can I can tell you that uh, <laughs> uh, I pretty much handed this chapter off to Sterling and said, uh, you know, I, I I know you know what you're doing and do your yeah, magic, do your magic. Um, there were a few tropes I wanted him to hit on that I threw into the outline, um, but uh, pretty much all the specifics were his. The yeah, I, I I remember we discussed this a little bit and we discussed having the the section about the hero's journey and all that. Um, but yeah, mostly I just I gave him some rough ideas, turned him loose, and he gave me back a great chapter that I changed very, very little. So,
4: yeah, uh, yeah, the hero's journey was definitely one that uh, that uh, that Max wasn't covered, uh, and so that was interesting for me because, you know, of course I'm aware of it, and of course I've read about it in in the past, uh, off and on, uh, because of just its its um, History with uh, with Star Wars and George Lucas and all that, but uh, to have to have to actually get sit down and and talk about it and try and explain a little bit of it in a in a uh, concise way, um, yeah, that was interesting. That was a different something different that I really hadn't done before. So that was that was fun to sort of dive into those details and then try and figure out how to how to sort of convey that, and then you know, people can. Of course, go and read a whole lot more about it elsewhere if they if they really want to get into a lot of the ins and outs and how different stories have used it. Over, the I years. really
2: liked the sidebar you came up with on on Joseph Campbell and and talk, discussing that. And when, I remember when we, you know, when uh, when I was, I was reading over it, I was like, oh, I really hope you know we can keep this in the manuscript uh, because I, I think this is just so great. And uh, LFL was totally fine with it, so it's intrinsic.
4: Yeah, it's it's one of those. I mean, we don't do a lot of, of sidebars or notes like this, where we sort of you know break out of the world, so to speak, yeah. and talk about. I mean, we get we do it a little bit uh, when I when like in the GM's chapters when I've talked about using the music in the game, or or um, or when we were t- talking about uh, at least back in in Edge and Age, especially Edge um, about all this 30 years of canon out there. So there are times where we do speak to something outside the universe and this is one of the few times we've done we've done that um so that was it was nice to have that in there and i thought it was i thought it was important to to because that's really uh if you're going to talk about the hero's journey as part of star wars i think it was important to include
2: oh absolutely now i i thought you did a a great job making concise a very complex topic and getting it down to a perfect length for a a two-page spread
4: yeah, one of the things uh, I was trying to see my bookshelf over there and find the title. There's a, D, there's a DK book uh, talking about myth in Star Wars. It came out like 2000, something like that. I think I bought it in England, which is why I think it came out in 2000, 2001, somewhere in there. And so I went back and pulled that out, and that was that was helpful as well in in in, in help in researching this.
1: Now, who came up with the concept for the two-page spread on the hero's death? and how did that get invo- how did that get added into this well Cause it's so... something that's yeah, cuz it's something that just isn't you wouldn't think about it. it's like okay pc's dead make up a new character but you've got this in here where you can have folks pass you know folks who
2: whose characters die and could still theoretically be involved in the campaign so um, i can't remember if, if sterling introduced this or if i you, suggested you had, it should be in there or whatever i was just looking
4: back and you the hero's death was definitely part of the outline. Uh, but it was about a paragraph. <laughs>
2: gotcha. Um, but I, well,
4: as the outlines are, that's not unusual.
2: Yeah. Part of the part of the reason I, I'm glad this is in here, regardless of how I got here, and one of the things I was so glad I was able to find some art for was uh, you know, Obi-Wan is the iconic guardian. And uh, so, you know, if you're gonna have a book about, you know a book where he is, you know, sort of the iconic character wrapping it up you have to have a part about the character dying
4: i like it well and and also what was interesting about this too was the if the very last couple of paragraphs and actually the terminology even changed since when, since when i worked on it but uh, the dark side phantasms mm. that was that was interesting because that was a different take than what we'd seen before with yeah, dark true. side spirits they're not really as they're being portrayed now, they're not really spirits. They're really manifestations of the dark side, which is a little bit different than, Mm -hmm. than uh, a self-aware spirit like Obi-Wan. Yeah. Yeah,
2: One of the things that, um, that they, the episodes of Clone Wars that deal with this and um, rebels that deal with this really stress is that uh, uh, there's no, um, there's no afterlife for the dark side. You know, like there's the dark side is not a path to immortality. And in fact, is not a path to anything but sort of self perpetuation of hatred. Um and so, mm. you know, the uh, the these, the dark side does absolutely create these ghostly manifestations, but they are not self aware beings. They are just a reflection of the character's own inner demons.
0: It's funny you use the word demon because it almost it, it has religious overtones to it. It's really, mm. really interesting. To me, at least, it has some religious overtones.
1: Another beautiful chapter, Sterling. Yeah, uh, we do have a couple questions on the new armor crafting rules that were introduced in this book, completely by surprise. By the way,
0: oh, you had yourself a little nerdgasm over that. Admit it.
1: This was this was a, this was a very welcome surprise when I opened up this book and I saw these two pages. I'm like, ah, this is cool. Um. Yeah, these are some solid, solid rules, and I'm I can only speculate that we're going to see something quite similar to this from, um, from the technician book that's coming out because it, it talked about choosing templates and spending, you know, making the roll and spending time and spending the bonuses that you roll from the that you get from the roll to on special effects and stuff like that. Not going to ask you about that, but we will have a couple questions about armor crafting. First one coming from Richard Buxton. Uh, armor crafting! It's cool and fun, but it offers quite a step up in power. It seems this may be one of the first supplements that has that is a must-have for every group. I like the idea of an entire party rocking custom armor, but it could get a bit cheesy. Can a little of the reasoning behind this possible power creep be explained, please? A PC could spend over 30,000 credits on a highly modified suit. Uh, first of all, that doesn't sound like too much of a detriment if you're dropping
2: thirty grand on a highly modified suit. That kind of yeah, like
0: credits great. are hard to come by. Uh,
2: that that's sort of how I feel about that particular point as well. Um, yes, you can create some very you know combining all of the many you know modifications and armor crafting rules and such. You could potentially create some really horrifyingly powerful suits of armor, but you would be paying about as much as you would for a small starship, or maybe even a large starship. Word. Um, and, uh, you know, so if, you know, if money is no object, you know, like characters can get out of hand in all sorts of ways, but money is an object in most of our Star Wars games, um, especially Edge of the Empire, but honestly, all of them, you know, in Age of Rebellion, you always have the Rebellion's meager resources to deal with, and in Force and Destiny, you know, in theory, you shouldn't be pursuing material wealth. I mean, in practice, (laughs) you know, player characters are going to play your character, but, um, yeah. you know, in theory, you shouldn't need it. Um, so the armor crafting rules are, um, something we, we wanted to do. We've wanted to do crafting rules for a while. Um, yeah. Uh, and, uh, armor crafting is obviously one, uh, manifestation of that. Um, the armor crafting rules, the other important thing to keep in mind about them is that they take a lot of time to get anything done.
3: Yes.
2: Um, so, uh, and that's something GMs should make sure to account for is like, you know, even if your character has a day, they can't build a 24-hour – a piece of a suit of armor with a time of 24 hours unless they do nothing but work for 24 hours, in which case they're not going to sleep, so they're not going to be recovering any strain. They're not um, going to eat.
1: They're not going to take breaks. And that's going to cause setbacks, conflicts, and upgrades. Exactly.
2: I think, Tony Stark,
4: I think Tony Stark and Iron Man. Yes. Exactly.
2: Exactly. So, like, Tony Stark does not live a heavy, healthy lifestyle, and he probably <laughs> runs around with his strain threshold almost filled up most of the time.
4: Well, that, and I was specifically thinking about the first Iron Man movie. Where he's in a in, in the in cave. In the cave. Yeah. Trying to, you know, hammer iron together or whatever he was doing. Right. Yes.
2: Yes. Well, he did build his augmentative armor in a cave with a box of scraps.
4: Um, but he's also a little bit. <laughs> also exploded next. the last time he cra- The first time he crashed it. So.
2: Yes, it did. <laughs> That uh, that unexpected flaw came up in a big way. <laughs> I suppose I should have thought about how I should land with this thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, so anyway. Um, uh, and at the end of the day, all the temples are based on existing pieces of armor. The augmentative armor is based on um, the power armor from um, Dangerous Covenants, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're nothing... There are really nothing you couldn't already buy. Although you can make a piece of armor that is slightly better than something you could buy if you generate enough advantage and yeah. triumph. Um, generally speaking, most of the time, you're going to get something close to what you could have purchased anyway. And in rare cases, or if your character is really specialized in it, you might be able to make something a decent bit better. But you'll have spent a lot of time, uh, you'll, you'll put a lot of time into that project and you'll have had to, you know... Basically, you'll have had to commit a lot of effort to it, and you should be rewarded for that to some degree. I like how this is one of those rare times
1: where you actually want to roll just enough successes to succeed and generate as much advantage and triumph as you want. Maybe not even a triumph. Maybe you just want as much advantage as you want to try to pick up all the little things from the checklist.
0: Yeah, a little extra soak here and there. Absolutely.
1: But I did want to say that the, the the time factor on some of the nastier suits, especially the augmentative armor, and it's starting out as a formidable check, that is a balance factor in and of itself. Really, someone who, from what I, from what I determined from the, by these rules, someone who really wants to make a badass suit of augmentative armor is going to want to try to just, cr- just you know, do the classic old uh, MMO thing of grind augmentative armor suits to try to lower that difficulty, get it down to simple and then make that one final master suit when he, at, the, at the very end of spending, what, months trying this procedure?
2: Yeah, I mean, 120 hours is, you know, that's a solid uh, solid amount of work. Um, yeah. And uh, that's assuming that you're not out adventuring. Right. Um, which, uh, presumably, you are. Um, so, yeah, no. The idea, especially with, like, reinforced clothing, you might be able to, you know, like, pretty quickly, you know, like master doing that, but augmented of armor, that would take, you know, it might take a length of a campaign to, you know, a short campaign to even finish building one. Yeah, one um, And it would certainly take the length of a long campaign to get good at it.
1: Right. Uh, Flare Bright comes with our next question. I'd like to ask for clarification on armor crafting rules. Spending advantages, triumphs, threats, and despairs when crafting. Some of the options specify how many times they can be selected. For example, extra melee defense can only be selected once. But many other options don't specify a limit on how many times they can be purchased. So was the intent to allow these options to be purchased as many times as a PC wishes, assuming he has enough advantages and triumphs to spend? For example, would a roll lucky enough to have three advantages and four triumphs allow purchasing lightweight three items... uh, Sorry, purchasing lightweight three times and integral attachment twice? Yes, is the short answer.
2: Sure.
0: How do you get four triumphs and three advantages on top Who's of your dice? success?
2: We've created dice? test characters who could potentially stack that up, but it's wow. not easy to wow. pull off. Wow. I mean, we, we ran through this with a bunch of different characters with uh, you know like various capacities for building armor, and what we found is most of the time, somebody who has a little bit of training is going to be able to make something that is either a little bit better or a little bit worse than... Than what they could purchase for about double the cost, um, most of the time. Meanwhile, a character who's really great at it will, every now and then, make something that's a lot better. Most of the time, they'll just make something that's a little bit better. Um, Even a character with a lot of experience uh, spent on it, um, you know, uh, generating enough triumph to get really crazy is is difficult. But if you generate four triumph, you can get multiple integral attachments.
1: Hmm. And as someone who uh, is a member of the 501st Legion, never underestimate the, uh, the assistance of some dude who's willing to hold things together as you clamp them down. That, assi- that, that unskilled assist is a, can be a huge benefit to getting some of these extra uh, extra advantages. True. Mm-hmm. Our last question comes from our longtime friend, Yagur Grite. Regarding the armor crafting rules, one... Would you let players crafting existing armor, like Jedi battle armor, armored clothing, concealing robes, or armored robes?
2: Uh, So, yes. So, um, uh, regarding that question, um, that is not covered under these rules. So, any GM who wants to do that is taking their life into their own hands. (laughs) With that said, I as a GM would absolutely allow that. Um, I think that's handle? totally fine. And on the subject of the next question, which is, could you improvise some new templates to show how you would customize templates in your own games? Um, follow on to that that next question. Uh, I think the so the basic metric, and we, we adjusted this when necessary, but the basic metric for crafting a piece of armor that we used for coming up with the templates was it should cost roughly half as much because you're not guaranteed to get something. Um, the check should be based on roughly you know like how rare it is and how uh, or, or sorry it should cost roughly half as much the rarity should be um one to two lower um than the rarity of the item you'd need for the material price uh, as opposed to but just buying the item outright yes, um cool. the check should uh should be average for like a rarity one to one to Three item you know like uh and then maybe scaling up a bit um for like four or five six um up to formidable for something that's really difficult to get um or something that's just really complex that kiss was a little bit there wasn't a like strong guideline on that it was sort of figured out as it goes um and then the time should be on and for time we used a uh, I actually talked to a friend of mine, um, a coworker worker uh, who has done some uh, armor crafting, and I got some rough ballparks from him, assuming one had access to machine tools and similar. Um, obviously, for augmentative armor, that case is purely theoretical because that's, you know, like, kind of still in the super prototypey stages in the real world and is just a thing people have in Star Wars. But for, you know, for putting together a suit of, you know, like medieval plate or whatever i got a rough ballpark from him and then dropped that time a little bit to make it more achievable to pcs um so you know cloth somewhere in the 12 is six to you know 24 hour range if you're dealing with you know like having shaped metal probably like 16 to 24 plus hours and if you're dealing with something really fancy like 48 plus um so that's not a strong set of guidelines, but that's roughly how we came up with these. And then we obviously tested them to make sure they worked right and adjusted some things up and down, changed the times a little bit, changed the cost a little bit based on specifics, all that, to make sure it was balanced.
1: This, this, the, the, and it's funny because I, I mentioned the 501st, and these numbers totally match up. Like, 48 hours for a suit of combat armor. I've put together a suit of clone trooper battle armor. Uh, you know, classic clone stuff that you see in the Clone Wars cartoons. And 48 hours was about right. It took me 52 days of working one to two hours a day after I got home from work to trim it, grind it, um, uh, uh, get attach- attachment points, get it painted, the whole nine yards. 48 hours is about how
2: much time it takes to put that together. Cool. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that number ended up roughly right. So. Yeah.
1: No, you 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 pretty much nailed that right on. That 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 totally fits. And something like. Uh, scout trooper armor, which would probably be like deflective armor because it's kind of lighter that way. M- you know, mostly cloth with a couple points. Uh, 24 hours of time, that sounds right too. You're spending most of the time putting together the cloth pieces on it that, rather than just the the armored plates. Those are just shaped plates. and You can usually finish those up in like seven, uh, four or five hours. So I, I I was amused to see that the time on some of these things matching up with uh matching up
2: with the cosplay construction times. Good, I, I'm glad that worked out. That actually, yeah, that's I'm, I'm glad that worked out.
0: So Sterling, I have a question for you. Switching gears for a bit.
2: Okay.
0: Um, when you wrote out the the Guardian stories, these are like adventure seeds, so to speak, right? Right. And is this a departure? And I've, I've looked back through, and and I only had a couple of books handy. I had uh, Aces, and I had Colonists, and there's you know there's some story ideas in the Colonists book, you know, which is Far Horizons, but it isn't laid out like this. It's a you know it's a episode. You know, here's a Act One, Act Two, Act Three for you know for the for Far Horizons. This which I also did. Yeah, ha <laughs> ha. See, there you go. Is um is this a little bit of a departure from the other books? Is this something that we can, you think will I, I, I hate to add to speculate, you know, and, you know, cause I know we're under orders not to talk about future stuff, but I really, I just, I guess I just want to say, I really like the way that this one's laid out with, you know, here are some important story elements. Here's an example of how that would be manifested in, in a, you know, in a story or a campaign. You know, here's a monster slaying. You know, here's what's going to be important about this. Here's how you can incorporate it. So it's a little bit more abstract rather than, you know, laying out here's uh, here's, you know, act one, two and three for a typical story. Is is this kind of where, you know, Max, maybe you can chime in. Is this is kind of where we're going more abstract than literal.
4: Um, I so I was trying to remember back. Um. Because I don't I don't think I got any instructions on how to how to do that uh, exactly. Um, I think maybe part of it I'd have to go back and compare. Part of it might be a little bit with word count. I might have had in that because the uh, uh, Far Horizons would have been was that the first that may have been the first or one of the first ones we did. Um, So it may have been partly word count. May have been partly just uh, adjusting, kind of as I as I've gone. i don't know max do you remember
2: yeah so one big thing about that actually is that the section you're talking about with the like the more concrete story hooks is actually in this book as well um and that's more covered in the page like 86 to um 86 to 89 range where we outline a couple campaigns right um so that's more of that um i think this was Sort of just a case of like what was right for this specific book. Um, we wanted to uh, really hit home. I mean, I mentioned in the in the art meeting we discussed. You know, like this is the book about you know like hitting a specific set of Jedi tropes. You know, the the samurai, the cowboy, sort of the knight, the wandering hero. You know, and uh, obviously and this is reflected in the text as well. And this was really the section to you know hone in on that and uh, and and deal with it. And um, so. I think what you may be seeing is you know like we're really going after these archetypical stories and Sterling did an awesome job with this i um, have just like getting to the heart of these you know sort of this is the story arc of like you know the battle that can't be won which is so important to you know that's sort of that's sort of that sort of, uh, that sort of fiction right? right this is yep. the this is the you know like story of uh, you know, uh, fighting off the bandits menacing the town. I mean, you know, like, that's that's Seven Samurai, that's the Magnificent Seven. That's all these things that influence Star Wars, and, and you know, that's such a such an iconic story that, you know, we needed to talk about it because it's... Which I
4: uh, actually went back and watched a little bit of the of the uh, uh, Seven Samurai. Hmm. You can find maybe all of it, but you can find, certainly find bits of it on YouTube and so I th- forth. I think it may all be up on... I think it's uh, all up somewhere, One of the yeah. streaming sites...
2: Um, I seem to recall, had it. Good film.
4: Um, but uh, and I was just kind of – I pulled up the outline again just to kind of look back. And in the outline, we were talking about uh, – or you were talking about uh, uh, more encounters than it, – it, it was more broken up as, it, as uh, encounters and campaigns, whereas I believe uh, Far Horizons might have been can- – Encounters, cam- adventures, and campaigns. I think there was a bigger, I think it were broken down a little bit differently. So mm-hmm. when I was doing it in the text here, that's why I was just flipping through. The, you're just talking about, um, the, oh, like, this one's the townsfolk one. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the important story elements are the location, you know, have, always have the location, sort of who you're dealing with, the enemy. Uh, and then I, I put an example for a single encounter in a full adventure. That way, you know, because sometimes you can do an iconic, a little bit of an right. iconic scene like this and just boil it down to one encounter if it's a really dramatic encounter uh, so I wanted to be able to show kind of what that might look like um, in here speaking of townsfolk um, the 82, 83, page 8283 art spread I really love it it's a landscape, big landscape Tatooine kind of thing
2: yeah that's actually the um, the Our, uh, front it's... cover of the book um, behind the oh, figure it is. <laughs> yeah yeah, we try to we try to make sure that you know we use that inside because they're they're usually really big pieces actually and they're always beautiful. Yeah. Um, and so we try to make sure that gets some play inside the book as well, so that people can really see it up close. Because yeah, I love the like stone heads to the you know looming over this little town. You get the sense that there's this, like ancient civilization that they're sort of living in the living in the wake of.
0: Yeah, the, the... the mountain. You know, and I didn't see this before, so it, it, it might—I'm going to change my vote that this is my new favorite piece. It's
2: a nice, tranquil piece. I dig it. It, Yeah. It's got that Star Destroyer up in the sky on
4: the left, though.
0: I do see that, yep.
2: Oh, wow!
4: Look at that! Oh, that oh, oh yeah, I hadn't seen that. That's funny. Yeah. So all, right, that... all right, is anyone else disturbed by the Star Destroyers flying around in the atmosphere?
2: It's it's scary. It's a scary image. I like that they can do it though because it makes yeah. it makes it feel like you're not safe from them anywhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> I
4: guess so. I always I always just I guess it's going back to when I was you know, originally saw the movies, I always envisioned them as as you know, they were spaceships. They were not meant to land. They were not meant to come down, you know, that close. And if you're getting into the atmosphere, then that's probably a bad sign. So when they <laughs> I think one of the video games actually originally is where I originally saw that start happening and then of course uh, later examples, but uh, Rebels yeah that the Force uh, Unleashed? Yes, Rebels has it. Yes, exactly. And, Rebels is uh, the
1: first time we saw it. I mean, we had the Venators landing. The Venators actually landed. They yeah, had, yeah they're, they're almost designed that way, but sort of, you sort always like, got the impression.
4: sort of like seeing the Enterprise in the new Star Trek movies landed and being built on Earth. I'm like, really? You wouldn't just build that in space? Right. But, and like,
2: oh, is that exactly working out for you? Yeah. The Venators are a little smaller, too, so. Oh, they yeah. are.
0: Right. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you have to understand, you know, the the original Enterprise that were still building stuff on the ground, you know, Enterprise E by the time they get to it, yeah, they weren't space dock, you know, mm. technology.
4: Well, uh, it's kind of funny, it was, it was a Voyager, the first time they landed that one, that, one. that was actually pretty fun, pretty funny Oh, my see, God! Because it was just kind of a surprise. Yeah. Never seen quite something like that before.
1: Got these little feet things coming out of the side, and I'm like, oh, yeah. that's so cool. Might have been a little small, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um just uh calling an audible here i've got a note here uh max from keith cappel that says tell max i said what's up and that he should put me in all the books
2: all right well (laughs) tell keith message received (laughs) done and done uh Uh, he knows where to find me (laughs) i I assume
1: he does I, i assume he does
4: i believe that's my line right i get to be in all the books
1: well, that's because you're, you don't really you're, have to tell anybody at this point, Sterling. <laughs> I think it's <that's> just assumed. <laughs> <laughs> some company will. Some company years from now will get the Star Wars license. They'll make a whole new game, and you'll be like 116, and you'll still be writing for them.
4: Fifteenth version of of Tatooine. still got the same canteen. Same ten guys are in it. Yeah, I,
2: can, I hope you enjoy setting up. Uh, you know, setting up Jawas again or whatever.
4: You know one thing that has been very different about working for on this game line though is that um uh especially compared to saga, uh, in that we're not statting up iconic characters in this in this game. Mm-hmm. So I'm not spending a bunch of time making making stats for wedge antilles or, or whoever. And yeah, so that, definitely. That and and so that's that's been been different. Um and uh, when in saga, of course, it was such a uh, the character, the NPCs were all built, by, built like the characters, and so that was both could be really interesting. I mean, I, I really knew uh, character creation inside and out because of that. Uh, and it was, but it was really interesting sometimes to make them uh, to say, okay, this guy's got to be able to do these, these five things for sure, and then attack. You know, see where I could make the system work to my advantage, play with the numbers, um, and. From from a sort of rules, um, you know, mechanics sort of tinkering standpoint, that could be that was both uh, it could be really interesting, and at times I also knew I was going to have hours and hours and hours of stat blocks, and uh, and so that's that's been very different for this for this series this uh this game.
2: Yeah, we definitely with the system we endeavor to to make it so the GM doesn't have to work too hard with that said i would be lying if i said i had never built an npc according to character creation rules myself because i sometimes <laughs> enjoy doing that mechanics optimization stuff right where it's like oh well okay what nasty stuff can i give this character oh that's fun you know right. but i but i think it's it's nice that we could sort of offer the like simplified npc profile you know we don't have to worry about tracking all the specific you know like oh well, they'd have to have this talent that talent and the other talent but then, if you want to do that, you can always just build your villains as, as PCs, just give them a zillion experience, and uh, you know, let your players have fun with that. I love the adversary talent.
1: that
4: was Yeah. A well, genius, well, the other nice thing about tradition. yeah, the other nice thing about building uh, adversaries in this in this game is I don't I'm, I'm not I am i do not get any more emails of hey, you misadded this this <laughs> modifier or you forgot about this thing. Those are always fun.
1: <laughs> no kidding, right?
2: Yeah, that's actually kind of a a lot of our philosophy for designing. Uh, NPCs in this system uh, actually, you know, comes out of past RPGs we've worked on, where, you know, like, a lot of the, the older RPGs we've done, we, we had sort of fiddlier NPC stat blocks, and there are a lot of advantages to that, but there are, it's a lot of work, and a lot of times it feels like you would just end up, at least when you're jamming, you know, like, if it's just a mook, you just end up ignoring the 15 skills they have that they're never going to use, and like, yeah, they should have those skills, but who cares?
4: It's never relevant. Yeah, um, it, it, by the end of the saga run, even Rodney, uh, thompson was saying you know if we had this to do again we would definitely not do this (laughs) (laughs) we would definitely go go well because at that point the 4e so 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 what also happened was you know third edition uh D &D monsters also built basically like characters fourth edition got away from that and so he was already dealing with all that with uh, his his other design work and so they were already going in that direction and he was like yeah if we would have that was the one thing you wish they they would have taken because it would have simplified some things.
2: Would have, should have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's it's on the other hand, it's sort of it's sort of nice that they didn't because now you have you know both flavors, right? Oh yeah, and, and, and
4: you know people, different. One thing I've definitely learned by working over the addition, the different editions is you know different people like different systems for different reasons, and there are people that really love the the character building, you know, minu- well, minutia in some ways, but the 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 um, they really love that aspect of it, and then other people like something that's they don't care so much about it. They're just gonna you know play their character. So um, uh, it's it's always interesting to hear people's comments about which systems they they do or don't like and why.
2: Yeah, definitely. Well, and I also think it's one of those
4: nice things where like
2: I I I I have a sort of funny opinion about this because I you know deal with rpgs so much but like whenever a new edition of an rpg comes out i actually really hope that they change a lot of things because it's like i have the old edition to do the things that they already did like you know i have the old edition that's already one interpretation of that like you know i love seeing the new stuff because then it's like oh this is a different way to do this and i can like mix and match these elements and and do all these things so you know like having a really different version of a system to me is way more exciting than having like you know the you know a a similar take on something so like with star wars you know there are so many very different takes on star wars role-playing and they are so different from one another that you have this really neat you know like range of things to look at
1: absolutely
0: i get that totally what um phil what have are we through our questions
1: we are through with the questions. That's it, folks. That is keeping the peace. Force and Destiny. By all means, go out and get it. It is a blast. It is handy for anyone who is running a Force and Destiny campaign. And as has been mentioned, the armor crafting rules are useful for anyone who's running any sort of uh, any sort of mm. game where PCs are bound to want the customized armor, especially all you Mando lovers out there.
0: Oh, this one goes out to all you Mando
1: lovers out there. Oh yeah. <laughs> But I do believe that we've got
2: something special that you've added We
0: to, uh... do, actually, and this falls into more of a Messages from the Edge. Gentlemen, can you hang with us for a bit?
2: Yeah, I'm in a rush. All right,
0: Thanks, I've got something that I would like to, uh, to bring up with all of us.
3: He doesn't seem to take a hint, this guy.
1: I was beginning to wonder if you'd got my message.
2: Messages from the Edge.
1: Boy,
3: am I glad to
4: hear your voice. I think it would be wise if you took advantage of my knowledge in this instance.
0: Oh, would it now? Well, okay, here's messages from the Edge. We usually dispense with this when we have a, a book show. However, it's one of these regular show segments. We we take time to answer your questions. You can get us questions. How, exactly? Well, the easiest thing to do is go to the forums, wwwd 20 com/slash/forums. And head over to the Order 66 podcast boards, and you'll find a Messages from the Edge thread. You can also email questions to us, Chris at d20radio.com, gmphil at d20radio.com, Dave at d20radio.com, or if you're brave enough, and we've got several, like from Hooley and others, that we uh, just have in the pipeline at 262-D20-RADIO, or two six two three two zero seven two three four. that's the D20-RADIO hotline you can call. So, I have a question that I got via email, and this is a direct message that I got on the forums, and, you know, I don't go on the forums as often as, uh, like, Chris. Chris is on it, like, every day, multiple times a day, and... And I'm on it once a week, if that. You know, I, I my inbox stacks up and it says, you're going to lose all these messages if you don't go check. Okay, I'll, file, I'll go check, whatever. <laughs> so, you know, most people send email to Chris and they send it to Phil, but they don't ever send it to me because I'm not really the guy that GMs. I just recently actually started GMing. So this guy and uh, actually sent me a question. And so I was, I was so happy that I got a question that um, I am... Uh, I'm gonna. I really gave it some good consideration. So
1: and admittedly, it's near and dear to your heart. It's a new GM.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it is kind of. It is kind of. And and I unwittingly did this in my uh, in my campaign. So I don't know if this is going to be a problem or not. But we'll see. Okay. Um. So this is uh, an email from uh, Nick Thompson, and he writes this. He says, "I am a new GM. I'm actually new to RPGs in general, but I have a group I am getting together for an Age of the Empire campaign, or I'm sorry, Age of Rebellion." And one of my friends is having an issue with ranks in the game. Not skill ranks, mind you. Actual Militarms. officer ranks. Military ranks. To the point he's getting really weird and uncomfortable about the uh, about another PC being of a slightly higher rank and the role of team leader. He has admitted that he has a personal issue with it and doesn't want it to affect his friendship with the other guy. I personally did not think it would be an issue, but... Could you give me some advice on resolving this before it gets crazy and out of hand at the table? And he says, Thank you for taking the time to read this. I hope you're having a great day. We are having a great day. Thank you very much. So, I guess I got the question. So, I've been thinking about this answer for a long, actually three or four days since I got the question. Sure. My my first answer is that uh, as I wrote this um, one-shot for Gamer Nation Con for our Patreon backers, um, I'm sorry for our uh, for our Kickstarter backers. I have a team leader. I mean this this is a space. This this has a lot of space combat. It, it's very it's age, it's age specific. It's rebellion and military ranks just are a part of life. You can't you can't have a military campaign in my mind without having somebody who's going to make the decision yeah, and you know otherwise you wind up with a party that you know fiddle back i love you buddy but uh you know otherwise you're going to wind up with a party that gets split all the damn time Mm. right and so there is to me there was a team leader in in our in this campaign that i that i wrote and i did it specifically for the reason that i didn't want the i didn't want the party getting split i wanted if 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 they thought they wanted to do one thing and maybe not do it, you know, somebody had to make the decision. It's a military, it's a military thing. You know, Age of Rebellion to me is more episode three, episode what, five, episode six. You know, you really get into, you really get into fighting, you know, Empire versus Rebellion. And so my answer basically is this. You're you've set up a rank because you probably had to set up a rank, and if your guy listens to this, so be it. However, if I had a cat noise, I would go ahead and play it because that's what he's kind of being here. Meow. Yeah. I I you know I can get it. I, 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 I get it, but role-playing is role-playing. You're, you know, if you can't role-play a character and step out of your own personal misgivings for whatever reason, then you're not role-playing it right, in my mind. And, okay, so I have a personal problem with taking orders from this this guy. Well, when I created my character, maybe I should have been the team leader if I wanted to be the leader, you know? This is all stuff that needs to happen, you know, from a GM perspective. In my mind, this is all stuff that has to happen before the campaign even starts. Do you have a problem with taking orders? Do you, you know, what, what's your backstory of your character? If you didn't put your character had a problem taking orders, then your own personal misgivings have no business being in the game. And if you've got a problem, suck it up or leave. I mean, I hate to, I hate to put it that way. And I'm, I am kind of the, I am kind of the. Uh, the Sith of, uh, of our group, but, uh, you know, that's just the way it is in my mind. I I, um, I I definitely think as a GM you're going to take care of this uh, outside the game. You're going to have a discussion with the player. You're probably going to have to have a discussion with the other player as well, the team leader, and and you're going to have to do that relatively delicately because, you know, you don't want to create any drama. But, you know, how do you, how do you really resolve it? You know, the, the the resolution is, of course, you can always bring the other guy up a rank. You know, hey, you're going to get duty. Give him the opportunity to, to to shine. Give him the opportunity to earn more duty. Give him the opportunity, whatever, and give him a promotion or whatever. You know, that squeaky wheel getting the grease, which I don't usually like from a from both a business, real life, RPG, whatever standpoint. You know, you don't want to pacify the person that gets, gets his feelings hurt. But, I mean, that's just kind of the way it is. So what, what do you guys think?
2: Well, I'll, I'll toss out a slightly different perspective, um, although I, I think that's a totally valid one. And your 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 point about bringing it up outside of the game is is key, obviously, right? Like, you need to – that's, uh, you know, a discussion for outside the game. And, uh, you know, you figure that out so you don't have to deal with any drama at the table. Yeah. Um, uh, I will say that when you're structuring a game of um, uh, a military bent, um, one thing you can do to mitigate the problem of, of rank overall is if you do have a rank structure within your characters. And I actually think you could have plenty of Age of Rebellion games where you didn't. I mean, look at you know Rebels or even you know the movies. Like yeah, in the film, you know, like Han and Lando both have ranks as generals. But like you know, if they're in a tactical situation with Luke, is he going to listen to them? I don't know. Maybe. Um, you know, uh, but, uh, but, but that, that issue aside, um, I think the important thing, if you are going to have a military structure in a game, which is something I've dealt with because I also worked on Only War 40K Roleplay, is you want to give different players authority in different areas. So, for instance, you know, somebody might have tactical authority over the squad. Somebody might have some degree of strategic or logistical authority. Somebody might have authority over matters dealing with, you know, alien species or whatever, and so you make sure that it isn't, like, one person calling all the shots, even if someone's nominal in charge. So, you know, your, you know, like, a diplomat gets those situations where even though they aren't, you know, they might not have a military rank at all. And they're, you know, sort of uh, dealing, you know, they're part of this military structure, but they don't really have a rank. Um, they're going to, you know, call the shot on some diplomatic issue. But then the soldier calls the shot when they go onto the battlefield and they have to keep the diplomat alive. Um, so, I think that's an important part of it. It's just making sure that, you know, everyone is uh, having an equal chance to shine at the table, which isn't directly related to rank, but I can see how rank would come into concerns. Uh, it could create concerns about that.
0: All right. Uh, dude, totally, totally awesome perspective. We appreciate it. Sterling, what do you got, man?
4: Um, well, a couple things. Um, for one thing, uh, even though there's ranks in the game, um, I mean, depending on exactly what your campaign is and what your characters are doing. Um, it is, it is this somewhat goes back to what David is saying. Um, they could all be the same rank and they're getting orders from an outside source. Obviously that's used a lot uh, in the game um, within um, sort of within the game though. Um, there are also times where um, if, if, if somebody has a higher rank um, you know that that may be, that's important while they're on the mission. Uh, maybe less so when they're in other situations, uh, when they're on a, on base or they're acting. Um, maybe they're undercover. Um, so there may be some situations like that where within the game you can lessen the uh, lessen the uh, need for the different the different rank structure. Now, if the player who is playing the higher rank character uh, is enjoying themselves, um, you don't necessarily want to take that away from them um as long as they're not being jerks about it um if they are then there's a game called paranoia you should look into (laughs) Um, which is all about rank structure and 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 doing people in in a really crazy uh demented sci-fi thx kind of universe Mm -hmm. um
1: the computer is pleased. You are talking about paranoia, but be careful where you tread, for the computer is fickle.
4: <laughs> yes. Well, and, and so, so for paranoia, you know, every every team member has a different duty. You know, there is the team leader, but his symbol is literally a target, right? Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, there. This goes back to, like I said, I think to what Max was saying. You know, there's a in that game, there's a character who's in charge of. Um, who's the hygiene, uh, officer. There's a loyalty officer. So the loyalty officer is not, is not the not the, um, uh, team leader. So that could be an issue. There's some guy, there's a, there's a guy that's recording everything the whole time. And so the truth is the best, you know, what, what was the phrase? Uh, all the truth that something about editing and truth. It's really pretty good. Um, so that sort of takes it to the extreme. Uh, which everything in Paranoia is extreme, but uh, so there there's a couple of different ways to, to to go there, but I think I was just trying to think back back when I was running the Dark Strider campaign, this is going way back to West End Games, that was a that was a situation where you were playing actually a lot of if you were playing the game uh, as it was written, you were playing a lot of pre made characters that were very much you had one player that was the captain, you had other players that were security, and they all had uh, dr- there was a lot of drama in the game because they all had some of them had competing interests, and I had some occasional uh, conflicts within that game uh, because of those situations. And usually, people would just have a lot of fun with it and be funny. But if people took it the wrong way, that's where it could get a little bit awkward.
0: Right. So I guess my I, I, one thing that listening to you guys is, you know, if what I'm what I'm not seeing as a part of this post is whether the guy who is the team leader is asserting himself as the team leader giving orders and things like that because a lot of times in rpgs you don't see that you see okay yeah i'm the team leader but i'm not ordering people to do things so if you've if you've got a guy who's ordering people to do things then he might be practicing some (laughs) douchebaggery and so you might want to have to you know you you might want to have to mitigate that again out, outside the table you know have well, a talk and, with the guy and rein it in and
4: and, and but if he's if he's uh, doing this within the game and he's being a jerk to the to the other not just the player but to the characters in the game uh, there's always another person it's a chain of command there's always somebody above him so that oh, yeah. as a gm you could if that's the problem then maybe the gm has the general come in and say hey knock it off right um, uh, or whatever Uh, might mitigate the the issue a little bit. Ah, yes. uh, You know, it's it's, it's a social game. Um, Sometimes things can get awkward. It's uh, something we have to deal with um, from time to time. Um,
0: In the ever-filled wisdom of the words of Qui-Gon Jinn, there's always a bigger fish.
4: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was just thinking, uh, the Age of Rebellion... um, Rebellion Day adventure I wrote. In um, there, um, there was the lieutenant that was actually in charge of the group. And as I and as I've played that, uh, run that several times now. Um, now this is a convention game, so it's a little bit different. Usually, there's usually the people at the table don't all know each other necessarily. Mm. Uh, but that usually has played pretty well. In that, when it came time to give a couple of orders. Um, they would do that, but for them, and sometimes um, you'd get other players who would actually defer and say, "Okay, you're the leader of our cell. We're gonna, of course, follow follow you." And they're getting into the game more. But I I don't see it at every table. Sometimes they are act- acting more as a group and and uh, not relying on that leadership character as much or that leadership character. Sometimes they take control and it works great. So it's it just varies a lot. I
1: guess that's where I was going to go with it. I've got a I've got a PC party right now where four of the characters on the party are in the alliance, and then they've got a Jedi and then they've got a bounty hunter who's tromping around with them, and these are players and gamers who have been gaming for literally decades together, so they know each other. It's, it's social, and one of the players who is the who is lieutenant who is in command of the other group, she is very laid back about it. She lets those who are special, who are in their specialty, just like you, just like you guys talked about, who have their specialty to to voice their opinion and think and say, "I think we should do this." And then she goes "Okay, that's your that's your area of expertise. I'll take your I'll take your judgment. We'll do that." And when it, in those rare situations where she has to make the decision as to what we're going to do, she she does it well. She she and everyone who's playing the game knows that this is the game. We're in right. the military. This is this is part of the expected character. Yeah. So I'm wondering if there is a a an out of character conflict that, that needs to be addressed before the game starts. And really take a look at what you can come to expect from the person who is playing the superior officer. How are they going to do it? Um, arguably, and especially Sterling, what you were talking about with uh, convention games, everyone is you know if you're at a convention, arguably you're there to have a good time. Right. And you want there to have arguably. a good time. Hey, some people, <laughs> some, some,
2: some folks are there to be competitive. They're
0: hardcore gaming, exactly.
2: They're I, I suppose that's fair, but even then, you know, you're, you're seeking to, you know, like, enjoy that competitive experience, right? I, I, I think everyone has had that one guy who in
1: all their years of going to conventions, they will never forget this one, one guy. D-bag who
2: sat down at their table and just ruined the game. That one guy everyone's so had it that's fair but I think that's an issue of that D-bag putting their own fun over everybody else's yes. even that even that person is still seeking to have fun for themselves they're just putting it at the expense of everyone else which is the problem right and that's where right. I'm going with this is that everyone's there to have a good time
1: so I'm I if he's really concerned about taking orders from this other person there's something else going on There, there there's something else there and I think that whatever that is that needs to be addressed
4: one other thing I could point to a little bit, too, is that uh, this is going back more to the convention games, but it works in the home game as well. If, you're, if you do have an adventure where you know there's a, a, a leadership character, whether that's whether a rank thing or, or not, you just know that there's a character that's probably more of a, either a leadership role or at least a talking role, um, uh, if you could fi- sometimes it's best if you can figure out who, who will frankly play that, that character the best. Um, you know, I run, I've run convention games at, at area conventions for years. So I, have gotten to know some players and there are some players where, you know, if I sit down at the table, if I'm going to hand, usually I let people choose their characters, but I have been known on occasion to look around and go, okay, I know that guy's going to fall asleep at the table. He's not getting the leadership (laughs) character. Um, and some people, you know, I've had tables say, ah, just give us whatever you want. Okay, well then I'll do that. But, uh, um, And this is partly out of experience because I literally had a guy fall asleep at the table running like the leadership Jedi character way back in D6 days. And it's like it was kind of difficult for that moment. But uh, uh, so if you know you're setting up this kind of game uh, and you can have those, I think uh, Dave was talking about this, if you can have those conversations with the players earlier on and find out who may be best suited for the role or who's willing to do it or who's willing to listen to whoever else. Um, in the long run, that may work. Now you may get in the middle of the game and find out that dynamic isn't working like yeah, you thought. Something broke and that down. may be what's going on here. Um, yeah, I'm also curious it it more how different.
0: far along they are
4: in this game. You know, true. Yeah. So I think there's yeah, sure is it like the second game You know, if yeah. a couple game sessions in. Well, maybe it'll sort itself out a little bit if you right. play a little longer.
0: Yeah, so maybe there's there's some variables here that maybe we don't know, so I can't really pass judgment on the on the on the PC that I thought was being a wiener earlier, but um, you know because there is a possibility that that the, the leader is being kind of a douche, so you never know. I mean, you you truly never know, but GM, you got to take care of that quicker rather than um, sooner rather than later, and take care of it outside the game. And if you want to email GM at d20radio.com, you can do that too. I'd be happy to talk to you, but you know, Chris and Phil also, uh, you know, email all of us and see if we can get into a little discussion. That'd be, that'd be really kind of cool. Huh. Where did that come from?
1: I mm-hmm. think you were due.
0: Yeah, I guess. It just started all by itself.
1: <laughs> guess that means we're at the end of the show.
0: That was a timer. It was set for 1033. <laughs> <laughs> Worked out well. Yeah. Um, okay, so... This, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, is what they say is that, I guess. Right? That is that. Thank you, Max, for popping on with us for a couple of hours, talking about the newest and the finest role-playing series that Fantasy Flight has ever produced. Ever! dealing well, thank with you so much for having me on again. Dealing with Star Wars. Yes and i'm sure we'll have you on again sometime very soon sterling are we gonna yes you're gonna you're gonna come for gamer nation Con, but you're not gonna get here till friday night is that right or saturday
4: uh let's see my flight down is like late fr- friday afternoon so i get there friday evening friday right. evening okay awesome. I have to go look at the dates and or the times again i will say that my job has become a little bit uh busy busier than i had anticipated so um stay tuned but my, that's still oh, the plan
0: you got a new stadium coming or something
4: uh, actually, it's something very different, but uh, oh. uh, I'm not in a position I that I can talk about it. Oh, it's the next space shuttle.
0: It's a dog park.
2: <laughs> it's two dog parks. It's a <laughs> <laughs> On a space shuttle.
0: On a space shuttle. Yes. Oh, okay. All right. We won't. <laughs> We won't talk about it, you know. uh, We 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 do know Sporting KC had a great year this year, so maybe they're building a new stadium. Maybe they're
4: (laughs) they already they got a new stadium. Actually, when they switched the from the Wizards to the Sporting name, that's when they also got that's they did that when they moved into their new stadium. Oh, okay. And the new owners had the new owners had taken over a couple years before that, but uh, yeah, and then yeah, then they've just gone crazy since then. Oh yeah,
0: they had a real good year this year. So yes, we're talking soccer, this football, and the rest of the world.
4: Hey, baseball's coming back soon, so.
0: Hey, pitchers and catchers, any time now. Uh, yes, Max, Sterling, Phil. On behalf of all three of those, this is GM Dave. And I will utter the phrase, peace, love, and good gaming, and keep them dice rolling. And may the dice be with you.
3: Post show.
0: Dang it, I hit the wrong button here. I thought it was going to do good. Oh, drink again. And related website are not endorsed by Lucasfilm Limited, the Walt Disney Corporation, 20th Century Fox, or Fantasy Flight Games. Is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Star Wars, the Star Wars logo, all names, pictures, or references to any Star Wars vehicles, characters, or other Star Wars related items are registered trademarks of Lucasfilm Limited, Fantasy Flight Games, or their respective trademark or copyright holders. All original content of this podcast, including audio, visual, or textual information, is the intellectual property of the Order Sixty Six Podcast and the Gamer Nation, LLC.